we're sitting at a table and this is an event uh, at dinner and this girl came by who's a map painter and she's like hey do you mind if i just sit down for a second and show you my portfolio and um we're like yeah sure show us your stuff and we're looking through it and it's good work and out of nowhere she starts crying and we're like why are you crying like what's going on and she's saying i'm 23 and i haven't made it yet and there's like all this invisible pressure that we put on ourselves where at 23 most people shouldn't even you know have their first job necessarily and here she is thinking she's a failure because she's put that invisible pressure on herself and i think again that a lot of us have that unrealistic unrealistic expectation because they go out of their way to compare themselves to someone who has been in the industry for 10 20 years and they think well i'm not at that level yet i haven't achieved all this yet even though they're on the first year my guest today is al mckay He's a visual effects supervisor, director, producer, and content creator. Before that, he worked as an effects TD at Blur, Industrial Light and Magic, Pixomondo, and many more. On Transformers, Game of Thrones, God of War, and Half-Life 1. Together, we talk about how he got started in the visual effects and games industry when he was 13 years old, the importance of being fearless, setting up goals, handling chaos, and constantly evolving in the industry. You are listening to The 21 Artist Show, a podcast that inspires creatives to make meaningful content to pursue their passions. I'm talking with creators, artists, and engineers about their careers, lessons they have learned, and how to make an impact. I'm your host, Alexander Richter. I'm a technical director and coach in visual effects, animation, and games. For more content, go to 21artistshow.com. Enjoy the show. It's great to have you on the show, Alan. Thank you. It's great to be here. Normally, I have a specific question I ask in the beginning, but I, since you have much more experience with podcasts, it's like through like more than 300 episodes. Is there a question that you always ask, which you find is the best question in the beginning? Yeah. Um, I'll, I'll say that I think things happen organically. So it's, it's kind of like uh, after a while, you end up with a catchphrase that you didn't even notice you had because... You got you to end on something or whatever. And um, but yeah, usually I always ask how people got started. And that's because there are so many times where I've done my research on someone and I've got a set of questions I want to ask. But then they'll mention that, uh, you know, yeah, I used to be a, a sommelier was one, you know, a wine expert. And I was doing that professionally for 10 years. And then I decided to become an artist. You know, it's just that one answer just pivots the whole trajectory of of the interview so there's so many times i've just thrown the the script out and um we just go on this other journey so i like that because you learn a lot of the reasons why later on someone might do what they do perhaps like their parents uh you know told them always to get a real job and um you know so it's just like whatever it might be and and suddenly later on when you realize why they're so passionate about what they're doing it's because they've been living someone else's dream their entire life you know so yeah asking that has always to me been an interesting way to really understand a bit of someone's origin and why they do what they do i loved it so basically the question would be is like how did you start uh i always say because it, it varies sometimes i'll be speaking to like a ip lawyer or something like that but usually i'll say creative because it's it's a bit more broad but you know um it just depends but yeah usually i say um did you always think that you were going to be a creative or an artist growing up, you know, and it's, yeah, it's more a chance to say, well, yeah, I always was an artist and I 
figured I'd do this for a living or no, I, I was a lawyer for you know 20 years. And um, then someone started buying my Etsy drawings and here I am or whatever it could be. Okay, I think we, we have to steal it now for, for this episode for sure. <laughs> so like, Alan, mm -hmm. how about you? Like, did you always thought you will end up like as a VFX supervisor and motivational speaker and like course <laughs> contributor, podcast over 300 episodes, uh, all this thing? Did, was that always like some, some on your mind when you grew up? Definitely. Yeah, when I was five <laughs> years old, I uh, totally... No, I think when I was four, I wanted to be either a ninja or a T-Rex. <laughs> so, uh, you know, a dinosaur. So, um, yeah, I, it's kind of funny because I don't think I've ever, I really get asked that question myself much. But uh, I think I was always doing creative stuff. I was designing like toys for He-Man and stuff. I, my mom never sent off. I found out years and years later, hey, did you ever send off those designs for toys for He-Man and stuff to Mattel? like I told you to do when I was four. But um, I think I think I've had a bit of a weird career where, um, you know, I really went to school as a kid and I completely dropped out, you know, when I was 13 years old. And so the thing was for me, like, I pretty much knew I wanted to be an artist and I was obsessed with trying to do art on a computer because uh, I think just fate, I had a crappy computer, my monitor colors all were wonky so like i was just always obsessed about better graphics and uh doing things better so i think just it was more of an evolution of um having that interest and trying to make something out of it that leads you then to a path of going to visual effects someday when does it became a real mm -hmm. path where you felt like you spent enough time daily on on i don't know visual effects or drawing or what was your start basically yeah so I was always doing 2D art, like uh, sketching. And I grew up in a school where, you know, everyone seemed to be like, all my friends were really talented at artwork and obsessed with comics, a lot more talented than I was. Um, but that was my passion. I used to kind of hustle on like, you know, uh, if I went on a bus or if I'm at my friend's house, I'd be getting strangers or friends, parents to buy my artwork. Uh, so it was always kind of like, I think I had that mentality very early on about um, trying to do something with my art. And um, then, yeah, like, I think I wanted to get into video games. So I was trying to learn to program, but I didn't have an assembler at the time. So I was learning uh, assembly and I didn't, sorry, I didn't have a compiler, an assembler. What am I saying? I didn't have a compiler at the time. And it's not like I could download one off the internet because this was like 92. Uh, so I actually bought the book again recently as a 3D graphics programming book and I read it cover to cover and it was talk it was more focused on assembly back then and uh, machine code. But the thing is, I couldn't actually learn and apply any of it. So um, it's kind of went in one ear and out the other. But then I'd get into doing 2D art, pixel by pixel, frame by frame. And that was an obsession. So it kind of led me to 3D because I saw... Uh, the stuff coming out on SGI at the time. And I was like, wow, I can't draw that good. Like these plasticky 3D renders like Reboot and all those shows back then. So um, that kind of made me interested. Like, how do you make these clean, perfect images like this? Um, so that kind of made me obsessed with like, how do I pursue this 3D stuff? And that got me into Povre and then uh, 3DS DOS, a couple other programs back then. So I, I feel like everything was kind of like one thing led to the next to the next. And so then I got into video games when I was, well, I'll say this, like 
my career at that point was more the obsession of learning the stuff. And the thing was, I was still going to school just very kind of sporadically. I wasn't going all the time. I was kind of just occasionally, uh, you know, I'd show up at school for a week or two and I'd disappear again. And so when I was 13, so the second week of grade nine, I dropped out of high school. I just decided not to go back. And when I, when I did do that, that's when I decided, well, I don't want to be a high school dropout, so I better make something of myself. So that's when I started actually saying, well, what do I know? And the thing I knew was my art. That's what I'm passionate about. So it's more about building a career path and trying to set goals and go after those goals. So I think that was like a big pivotal time for me, just realizing, hey, if I'm not going to school, I don't want to be like a high school dropout. So I better um, make something of myself. And that forced me to sit down and say, okay, I want to work in LA in movies at that point. How do I do that? And I started blocking out a 10 year plan or whatever um, of, of what I wanted to do, which um, ended up being more like four or five years. But I think that's probably what I owe my whole career to was actually just having a plan in the first place. And that's where I feel like most people don't have that clear path of what they want to do. And without those metrics, they don't really, you know, know what, what strategies to take or, um, or see opportunities everywhere around them. Yeah, I feel like this is something, I mean, this is, I think, the biggest problem with this opportunities nowadays, as, uh, as you mentioned before, like the limitations, you know, of technology, for example, a lot of times pushes you somewhere and you are like forced to find solutions and stuff like that. And in the recent time, and I'm, I'm pretty sure you probably agree on that one, is like I find out that limitations are actually the one thing that makes me a better whatever, a better artist, a better technician yeah. on Premiere, for example, if a file is too big, I suddenly start to search for solutions. And then I'm looking back at it, oh, it's much, much better through the whole process after I found a solution, which on if, I, if my computer would be better, I would probably funnel through. And a lot of times also in 3D, in programming, in a lot of times, like every time I have like a crappy computer or the, the software were too, like, or the scene was too big or whatever, the solutions I found were much more impactful on my learning, on myself and like on the project in terms of quality than every time I was in a project where everything was like, you know, the, the computers are good enough, the software catched up, everything is real time. I felt like there was this, um, this struggling and this limitation missing that really pushed me in being creative in a way. I'll, I'll jump in really quick and just say that there's this article I've been working on for a long time, just chipping away in the background called why your crappy PC is your secret weapon. <laughs> and that's because um, so many people will contact me and be like, oh, I really want to do X or I could do this as well. But, you know, insert, I don't have a fast computer. And the thing is, I've never had a good computer. Like the computer I bought, my first ever computer was when everyone else had a 486 or a Pentium, I got a 286. And uh, so that was you know, the slowest thing is a one megabyte of RAM soldered into the motherboard. And yeah, like my friends used to mock me and call my computer a lemon, you know, <laughs> and the thing is every, every step of my career, I've always had like the, you know, at least for the longest time, like crappy hardware, but that was what taught me to be faster and more efficient and think about solutions better. Cause if you have all the computer power in the world, you're just going to be like, hit the button and then walk away. But if you've got to think, okay, well, how do I do this the cleanest possible? What if I can't do this? 
I got to figure out a new solution. Like I couldn't render volumetrics for the longest time. So I'd create these insane ways to have uh, light information go through the shader, which would interpret shadow and light differently to kind of mimic on a sprite back in like 98 um, to create like the, the illusion of a, a 3D volume on a 2D sprite just because I couldn't render a remarched sphere at that time. So there's all these things that the more limitations you set on yourself, the the more you're training yourself to come up with solutions where they wouldn't be clear otherwise. Yeah, I mean, it's also like the typical like biggest excuse I hear is like kind of, oh, I don't have the camera. Oh, I don't have the like yeah. project or I'm not in this company or I'm not in this that. I don't have the software. Uh, and basically like that's the reason why I cannot produce a movie or I cannot produce a YouTube video or I cannot produce it because my quality is not there because I don't have the, the mm -hmm. webcam or something like that here. I could do that if I if I had Houdini, uh, then all my problems would be solved. And then they get Houdini and then it's like, oh, this just crashes more than every other program or whatever. It's like, well, Blender clearly is the solution then. And it's always whatever you don't have is the thing that people use as their excuse yes. rather than saying, well, th this is what I've got. And that's why the expression, the best camera you have is the one in your hands rather than, oh, well, if I had a red and I've seen people like I've, I've got a red epic weapon and I've seen, you know, with, with all the gear, including the handle and the power cord, <laughs> which will charge $200, $200 for. Yeah, I've seen people borrow it and shoot absolute garbage. You know, it doesn't matter. Like, whatever excuses you're making, I'd rather the challenge of how do I make something cinematic on an iPhone over some ridiculously expensive camera. I have a cruise ship behind me. <laughs> uh, I, I, cannot, I cannot afford the license if they start playing because uh, they play um, the Caribbean. Um, oh. The... Oh, it's called Fluch der Karibik. What's the what's the English name? Oh, it's Johnny Depp. Is um, Pirates of the Caribbean. Uh, oh right. So. <laughs> oh, got it. That would be that would be like a licensing nightmare <laughs> if, I, <laughs> if I would have it on podcast. Yeah, it reminds me a little bit on on this um, on this what Jordan Peterson said. I'm not sure if you're familiar with with him. He he's like yeah. he, he's very familiar now nowadays because he talks about also masculinity, about how it's social interaction and stuff like that, and like he talks about chaos and order chaos is like a little bit more the feminine side order is a little bit more the masculine side um and in a way this is what limitation do they create chaos in your in your process you know like you want to go there but uh, your computer is too slow you don't have the the team or maybe you don't have the skills or whatever so basically you, you have chaos in your life and a lot of people choose the Oh, that's why I cannot progress. But at the end of the day, and that's some, for example, one of the things that we talked also before was like, sometimes you need some chaos in your life because uh, just to jumpstart, like, for example, I'm currently living in Airbnbs just to get a little bit of a different environment. Uh, like the internet here is crappy. Before it was good, now it's crappy. So it's like, now I'm kind of fiddling and trying to figure out how I can upload, download, communicate and basically the same thing and also for example this camera is now now really cool i had a bad one before and because it was so bad i learned a lot about how to compensate with color so my it was not sharp because i couldn't get a sharp image but i learned creating images that are really good on a phone because of color and contrast and and now I'm kind of like need to go back a little bit because now I have the sharpness with this one. And I'm like, okay, <laughs> now I'm like, wow, I'm doing a photo or doing a video. It's like, it's so sharp. It's like, 
wow, I didn't even know that, that, that this exists kind of way. I mean, of course, I know the world, <laughs> but but for me in my small world was kind of, I get so used to this limitation and I still was at some level proud of what I did. And I find a way and and people will tell me, oh, you're going to do good photos. Yeah, cool. And then I'm, I pushed myself harder and now I, I kind of get to other limitations. You know, it's this kind of step by step. And I think one of the things that I, I believe is you have to invite chaos into your life. And the more you control the chaos, you know, like living in abroad or pushing something, even if you're not 100% sure if it will go. I think this is uh, basically like you did a little bit in your in your childhood this creates this situation of i can i can either fuck it up or i get i can go where i don't, didn't even believe i will go like you you plan for 10 years you you end up doing it in five for example the biggest thing is because we talk about excuses like i think most people make excuses not to try about everything and i, I was talking recently with one of my team members and about how jaded I think I've become. Maybe I was talking with you about this too. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, um, we, we, like, we talked about that too. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, it's just like I was saying to her because we we're talking about how many episodes we had, and, and I think same thing with you. Like it's, you know, originally it'd be like, yeah, go do this. But the more that I interact with people, the more I realize that the real reasons people aren't getting the success they want and all the 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 results that they really want is mostly nothing to do with the process. It's to do with the fact that they just want the easy button. They want it already done. They don't want any risk. They want, I'll only do it if there's 0% risk, 100% success rate. And that's that's like saying, okay, I'm going to learn how to speak German. Um, and I'm going to, you know, I want to speak fluently, uh, you know, from day one. Hmm. You know, it's like nobody's an expert in the beginning. Mein Deutsch ist Uber Scheiser. You know, <laughs> hey, it, it come out hey, hey, I understood that. <laughs> but but the thing is, uh, okay, a good example would be living in Berlin. I would try to order a pizza, and all my all my friends who are like South African or from other countries, they'd be like, "I'm not going." Even if they lived there, uh, they'd be like, "I'm not going to order a pizza on the phone because it's too embarrassing. Like my German's not any good." And I'm like, "I'm going to be terrible at it," and they're barely going to understand me, but the whole point is if if you're not willing to try, it's like, I'm going to keep my mouth shut unless I'm, I'm willing to embarrass myself because through that, I'm going to get better. And this is like, I think one of the, you know, the reason why I might be jaded and think, well, someone says, how do I do this? Or this isn't working. And I say, well, the reason is because you're, you know, afraid of, you know, the re real reason is X. And most people don't want to hear the truth. They want you to say, oh, it's this button over here instead. and that's where I'm getting jaded because I'm, I'm more, I know what the real reasons are. It's because they're not willing to fail or, you know, go the hard path first. Like I had someone email me not that long ago, um, who was in one of my courses, uh, about doing live action effects. And so this is all about, um, shooting video, you know, uh, shooting and supervising as well as, um, doing the whole shot from start to finish. And this person is from France. He was saying that, this should just be easy. Um, you know, I, I don't think that I need to, I shouldn't have to problem solve. Uh, there should just be a button that does it all for me. And this is something that stuck with me. And I, cause I replied, I'm like, yeah, you, you could probably get a job where all you do is hit a button, but what happens when someone else comes along who can hit the button better than you, or what happens if they're cheaper than you? But this is like the, the big issue is that 
most of us are afraid to try. And because of that, we look at there being an external reason why, because we're not going to be honest with ourselves and say, well, the reason I'm not getting this result is because I'm lazy. No one says that because it makes them feel bad about themselves. So instead, they'll make up, well, the reason is because I have a slow computer or my Wi-Fi is crap. Uh, therefore, you know, I can't do the insert whatever uh, thing instead of figuring out a solution. But the people like this is an ongoing thing. Everyone I know who I consider successful, they're the ones who are relentless in trying. They're happy to try. They're happy to fail. And I'm obsessed with failure for, for that very reason, because I think that they don't see failure as a bad thing. They're not going to beat themselves up and say, oh, you suck. It's going to be like, okay, well, now I know that doesn't work. It's like you with programming, right? If if everything you wrote down, like every key you pressed was the absolute, like, I, I just need to write it once and hit a button and it works. Like that, that's not how programming is going to work. It's going to be, let me try this, let me try that. And then once you get it working, that's when you're going to say, okay, well, is there a better way to do it? Is there a faster way? Uh, and bit by bit, you'll get better at what you're doing. But if you were afraid to ever write a line of code, uh, you know, then where would you be? You would still be theorizing about hello world. <laughs> so, you know. I think I think uh, programming is actually a really, really good point because um, one thing with programming, it's consistently uh, like a, a failure process. It, it doesn't yeah, matter how good you get because the, the thing is like, the better you get, the more complicated stuff you want to do. The more you want to challenge yourself, you know, don't want to write hello world every time, you know, you want to write, uh, start to, to do learn classes, start to work systematically and stuff like that, which means at the end of the day, the amount of errors that you get basically starts to be the same, uh, like, you know, in percentage. So I always say like 70% of the time is debugging, basically. it's It means like 70% of the time, if you do like newer things, it will be most of the time is you will find errors because your brain is not as wired as a computer is. I always expect if I press compile or something like that, depends on which, which language I'm doing, I always expect that there will be an issue. First time, I never expect that it works. For, I'm always surprised if it works sometime. Like first time, it's like, whoa, something is wrong. You know, kind of the feeling like every time. And I feel like this Even is, when it's working, you're expecting the data that's going to come out of it is going to be wrong. Because I, I believe that then like, okay, <laughs> it's maybe right, but but the process is wrong. You know, it's like, it's it's absurd. Yeah. Uh, like, but this is logic that, that you find. And the, the, a lot of people are super afraid of that. And you notice that specifically in programming because it's so consistently uh, like showing you that you're wrong you know like not as like as easy in 3d or something like that you know your model looks crappy but it's still interpretationable you know whatever like it, there are too many vertices it's still like until someone says there is this limit it's it it works you know so i feel like this is a mirror literally to show you like okay can you can you handle mistakes consistently and mm -hmm. i feel like the, there is a, the point where you really need to get into this this momentum of like okay I have to get used to fail. This is part of the process, and um, as long as, like, as long as I want to progress, because if I do the same script, you know, basically the same script each week, uh, it like ah, nah, after a while I I know the ins and outs, and then will be working most of the time. But the moment I try something new, I I set myself up to failure, and as you basically said, is there is some perversion of of kind of like liking it 
I feel like. And I feel like this is also a way of, of handling it because if you fail so so often because you want somewhere, you, can't, you want to get somewhere, you know, maybe you want to be successful or you want to be on a specific project. There is this kind of thing is like either you, 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 you embrace mistakes and failure or you get like really depressed after a while. Yes. So two things I'll add in uh, really quickly is that you're going to get people who you, you were saying, if I just wrote the same script over and over and over, um, you're going to get those people who, yeah, you could do that. You actually could just write the same script over and over and over. And that way you're not going to fail. You're going to get really good at doing that one thing. But that also is a problem too, is that a lot of people are afraid of doing something new. They're like, well, I've, I've been writing this script over and over and over. And, you know, it metaphorically is an, an actual script. It's, a, it's your life. It's like, this is what I know. I'm going to stick within this comfort zone. And because of that, they're doing the same thing over and over. And they're afraid of like, well, how about you write a different tool? I can't believe we're using programming as a metaphor here, but <laughs> hey, instead of, instead of going and, and doing something new, instead of trying to do something new, you're going and, and doing the same thing over and over because that's all you know, and that's all you're comfortable. You feel safe doing it because you know it. Whereas the other person who is like, well, I already know how to do that. I'm going to do this and I'm not going to be very good at it. But the more that I do it, the better I get at it. And this is the problem that I see a lot of people have is that you get really comfortable doing your one trick and then you are going to stay stagnant doing that one thing. And that's when what happens when someone else can do that trick better, cheaper, or it becomes automated, AI comes along, whatever it might be. So I think that the real secret is always going to be growth. It's about staying out of your comfort zone and doing what challenges you because Every time you do something new, even though you might be an expert at it, it's a chance for you to like, I look at it as like your, your skill set, like you're Jason Bourne. It's like, okay, now I know how to kill someone. Now I know how to climb a wall. Now I know how to pick a lock. Everything you do is a new set of skills that you're learning. But if you are just doing that one thing and that only that one thing, eventually you're going to become stale. And I see so many people do that where all they do is sparks or whatever. And, um, for me, it's it's always about doing the new, new the new stuff that otherwise, like um, you know, I could easily stick with what I know and I I wouldn't get much growth. But if I'm constantly doing different things and I'm innovating, I'm learning, I'm growing, and I'm challenging myself, and it's exciting. And I, th I think like for later on, like I know that we'll get into career and business and all these other areas, and that's exactly my philosophy for that. Like I've spent two years where I didn't do any uh, stuff on the box at all. It's just 100% producing shows and supervising. Um, I've directed commercials. I've, I've done so many different things. And it was always because it wasn't starting over. It was just sidestepping into something else. And the thing is, every single other thing that I learned, I was able to then take back. Like I Learning to be a producer, like producing shows, when I went back to being an artist, this is something that stuck with me for the rest of my life. Like What I'd learned just from thinking more in terms of where time and money and quotes and, and schedule and everything is going, it's made me manage myself better as well as be a better manager too. So everything is experience and you're not going to be a master at everything. And if you feel like you're ever at a moment where you could be like, yeah, I'm so great. Or your friends are telling you you're so great. I feel like that's when you got to get new friends who are better than you and are going to encourage you to get as good as them rather than feeling like I'm, I'm the best of my group. I'm so awesome and putting yourself on a pedestal because really you're setting the bar so low that there's nowhere else to go rather than saying like, 
okay, I want to be around these people. Look at all the amazing stuff they're doing. So I always think it's all about growth. So I always think it's about pushing yourself and setting new challenges. And that way you're never going to get stale and you're never going to be afraid to try new things. Yeah, I totally agree with that. I'm curious about about choice actually and and where you like going and where you staying kind of in 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 the situation. So, can you give a give me give us like a little bit as before we go into that a little bit of of uh, a resume so we we get like because we were at at the point where you um just finished or or didn't finished uh like high school I think was it? Um, and in this case and you you started your 10-year plan which you ended up doing at 5. So, what was like the path, the path that that lead up? Because I like my question would be related to to choice. How did you decide to go specific paths and and at the end stay at specific paths yeah. and then leave other paths, for example? Yeah, I haven't thought about that, and like I think that's such an important topic too. Is just um, being able to make the right decisions because there's always opportunity cost, and again, this ties back into um, being able to get out of your comfort zone because. I constantly reflect back on the what if, and it's not like, here, here's the big thing for me. I never, ever want to be in a situation where I think, what if I pursued that 3d thing that I wanted to do or what never if be in a regret situation, you know. basically. Yeah. But I think that most people probably are. And that's, the, that's the big thing for me is that I keep looking back at what if I leaned into those fears or those things that were in the back of my mind that you're going to fail, you suck, you're not good, imposter syndrome, basically. So I think of that because I think like, holy crap, like where would my life be if I didn't, if I stayed in school, if I did this, if I did that, and would I be happy? And I think it's healthier to think of like, what if I get, and being scared of, of that result of not even knowing like the potential of like what you could have. So for me, early in my career, um, I've had a weird career for sure. Because uh, like I was doing this stuff before most people had heard of 3D. Like Toy Story came out. That's when I finally was able to say, oh yeah, that's the stuff that I do. You know? And so when I was pursuing 2D art and then I got into like actual computer 2D art, that was exciting for me because suddenly I could, um, you know, I was, I was applying to this whole new thing that was relatively new. Uh, 3D was a huge obsession. Like, you know, I'd be going to sleep only because I needed the next four hours to render. So I set my alarm <laughs> with the estimated render time at the six in the morning, I'd get up at 10 in the morning. And so that became a big obsession, but really that plan was more like a 25 year plan. because it was, if I can, my goal, I, I read a, an article from Michael Comet, who I think is at Pixar these days, but he was at Volition at the time. He wrote an article about what a technical director is. And at the time that was what appealed to me the most. It was, an artist and also a programmer in one who solves problems essentially. And that's what I kind of self-identified with. And I, I thought if I could become a technical director in Hollywood by 40, I'd be happy. And um, so that was kind of like my, my pinnacle goal that I set out to do. So the one thing I did, and I think this kind of comes back to problem solving again, a lot of recurring themes here, but I I'd always reverse engineer something like whatever it was. So for me, I set a goal of, okay, I want to work in LA okay, well, what do I need to get there? And it would be, okay, well, I need to have qualifications. I probably need an education, like a formal education. I, I probably need to know people. I definitely need to know what I'm doing in the first place. I'm going to need credentials. I'm going to need all these things. What do I have? None of these. Well, how do I get these? And 
bit by bit, I would break it down and break it down until it went from being, that's an impossible goal to being, okay, that's, that's realistic. That is obtainable. It's just, it's going to be a lot of work. And for me, I think that that's pretty much how I apply or approach everything these days. Anything you set out to do, like you're going to have those people around you who tell you like, you're going to fail, give up, get a real job, go back to school, whatever it might be. But for me, I'd set a path of what I wanted to do. And it was just a matter of, okay, it's going to be a lot of work. But if I just start focusing on these things, like, okay, I could actually know how to do 3D at a level that would actually get me a job. That's, you know, one thing. Do I need a formal education? Do I need all these things? And you got to learn to adapt as you go as well. But having a plan and, and knowing, okay, you know, I got to do this, I got to do that. It allowed me to move forward. And I think also not comparing myself to others because I'm in a situation where I can't really compare myself to anyone because no one like visual effects is not even a, a term really yet. It was special effects still in a lot of circles. And that was the tricky thing is just in a way you're alone, but in another way compared to now where everyone is um, comparing themselves to someone else. Like I'll pivot for a second. Uh, trust me, I haven't lost track of what, I'm, <laughs> what uh, we're talking about, but I was in Paris uh, sitting with Ian McHugh, who's a production designer for a lot of big movies and a few other people. We're sitting at a table. Uh, this is an event. Uh, at dinner and this girl came by who's a map painter and she's like, Hey, do you mind if I just sit down for a second and show you my portfolio? And, um, we're like, yeah, sure. Show us your stuff. And we're looking through it and it's good work. And out of nowhere, she starts crying and we're like, why are you crying? Like what's going on? And she's saying I'm 23 and I haven't made it yet. And there's like all this invisible pressure that we put on ourselves where at 23, most people shouldn't even, you know, have their first job necessarily. And he or she is thinking she's a failure because she's put that invisible pressure on herself. And I think, again, that a lot of us have that unrealistic, unrealistic expectation because they go out of their way to compare themselves to someone who has been in the industry for 10, 20 years. And they think, well, I'm not at that level yet. I haven't achieved all this yet, even though they're on their first year. Um, for me, early in my career, it was pretty much like constantly pushing the envelope and just looking for new opportunities. So. The first job I ever had, uh, I'd made some like web pages and little simple stuff, but the first real job I ever had was actually a really big job. It was working for Valve Software and Half-Life. Oh. And that that being like game of the year, 97, I think, um, or 96, I think it's 97. You know, that to me, I thought like, oh, I've made it. Like, uh, you know, my first job in the industry and um, from here, it's going to be smooth sailing. And the thing is, it was a very valuable lesson. Like the next year and a half, I didn't land pretty much any work at all. And um, so it was one of those things that just because you work on a few big things doesn't mean that your 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 life set. is set. Yeah. But but you know, in a lot of ways, it was a great experience, and I, I learned a lot. And you know, bit by bit, it's about well, what's the next project? What's the next thing? And it's just about kind of finding the right opportunities that push you in different ways. And video games, again, was was definitely one of those. Um, just because we're talking about constraints, I love the beauty of video games because everyone compares it to film. Like we want film quality, but you work within the constraints of the engine. And in a lot of ways, that's more fun than work within the constraints of the schedule, which is what a lot of the time film is. By the way, I apologize. I just realized um, I'm going to... There may be gardeners coming. I didn't think of that. so I. Heard something. So 
maybe there's gardeners. Hopefully the microphone doesn't pick it up. But <laughs> <laughs> everything can go wrong will go wrong. But yeah, yeah, it's fine. Um, we're, we're used to that. I think, I think you have more episodes on your, on your back, so you know it uh, much better than I do. Yeah, like, like I said, at this point, between cats and, you know, noise and everything else, like, I, I feel like everyone's at home at this point. So it's, it's, there's <laughs> some fun to it. It's not like everything has to be studio quality. But This is one of the things I, I, I decided for myself is like, I want specific standards, but um, as long as you are clear and you uh, like there's this, you sit as, at the right position or something, the, the quality is not complete garbage, like, you know, uh, webcam 480p or something like that. Um, that <laughs> I'm more interested in, in consistency and I like, could dynamic, you know, it's, it's fun. It should be fun That's for right. us. It should be fun to listen. Um, and, uh, but I still like to have quality. I love it. But again, there's like elements of this situation where who knows what will happen, Out of your control. Sorry, you know, the internet breaks. Uh, that's right so. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll be fine um no but that, that's that's actually uh a really interesting statement i feel like because um i'm i feel like this is something that the pressure that that is i think is seen today much more than than at, at your time and even my time because the internet was not so prevalent at that time you know i remember i remember a friend of mine who started much earlier than i um was look like learning 3ds max by books there was one book mm -hmm. or two they were like famous and that's how he learned and then he fundamentals and uh inside so in, inside 3d studio and 3ds max fundamentals or whatever they were out for dos as well so and exactly and that's, that's basically how, how people then you had no comparison no one like no one was like oh look at my stuff or look how cool things i can do and i, I make a tutorial and you're like oh, i never can do that so you never had this this strong comparison you only had this book you maybe saw something on like TV or like some some like kids show where they so, sh showed a little bit of a introduction to graphics or whatever. Um, and then you're like, oh, that's interesting. So maybe I try. And you always felt like very much distant from specific quality standards or something like that. You did your own thing and you had no specific goal. You know, you did like a lot of people were not doing like i want to be a 3d artist very early it was mostly i play around a little bit in this software and this software and then suddenly maybe for you like toy story for example came and then like oh maybe there is something i can go into and i feel like as you mentioned like with, with the with this matte painter this comparison at the moment is is like fueled by the internet and this uh, like showing at the moment that you can see everyone's work in the world, but also and that's something where where I feel like it's co connected to that is like the fakingness of today, you know, like basically Instagram going forward, but look at LinkedIn and stuff like that. Everyone's presenting everything in a look at this incredible whatever whatever, and a lot of times there is not much behind it. You know, because for example, I remember um, I always fight the fight of should I do something flashy? Because that's the thing is like there's a lot of things I can post and I know if I do more flashy, if I do effects, if I do more shading or something like that stuff, it will instantly be more recognizable for me because it's like easy to digest. But one thing I, I really don't like in programming is like all these flashy apps because they're boring. I, I can do them. I know how to do them, but they're not very interesting. You know, I really like to work on the, for example, architecture stuff because there's a lot of interesting stuff. At least I, I was for the, for the last bit of last time, and um, I feel like there's this kind of a conflict of of um, substantial 
skills and this flashy skills nowadays. And you you always fight with yourself as like, okay, I, I'm 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 trying to understand. I try to educate myself, but then you can see all this great work and all this flashy work, and you feel like torn apart. You're you're not sure where to go. There are no limitations. Uh, you feel so pressured. You feel like like basically you're sad. And I feel like this is um. I, I still tr try to figure out a solution uh, for that for that situation. So that's why one of the reasons I love to talk to to people like you, Alan, because I feel like there's there's so much understanding in terms of how your path was, and a lot of paths were not like a straight line. You were not from the beginning. I want to become this specific thing. Um, a lot of times you were like. I did things and then it kind of spiraled. And then I, uh, at a specific point of my life, I decided. And then I, I decided, but I still knew the time frame. You know, I, I, like, as you said, you probably planned even longer than, than the actual time frame was actually. And I feel like this is today more sure. of, a, of this uh, on demand, uh, like environment is like, oh, you know what? I want to work for ILM or I want to work for Pixar. Let's, uh, I apply next week with my crappy showreel and they, they didn't want me. So I, I must be the worst. How do you, how do you do the, the cho choice part basically without overpressuring yourself, for example, also? I'll, I'll tell you a story, uh, which ties into exactly what we're, we're just talking about. Um, I set a goal when I was 13, I think I was like 14 at the stage when I decided like, okay, I'm definitely not going back to school. And I, I remember my grandma, when I was a little kid, telling me in the small town that I grew up in that, um, you know, that person is a high school dropout, that person. So it kind of like stuck with me that I don't want to be one of those people. So when I decided I, I wasn't going back to school, that's when I decided, well, I need to make something of myself. And I set this goal. And you're absolutely right. Like, my goal was by 40, you know, if I had achieved this thing. And in hindsight, I could have probably set my goal a bit higher than be a TD in LA. You know, it's like, okay, tick, tick. Um, but by having those goals, it, it gave me something. But it also meant that when I was 19, I got offered a job in LA. I couldn't get a visa at the time. But then when I was 21, I moved to the States. Like literally four days, no, 14 days after I turned 21, I moved to the States. And at that point, it wasn't because I couldn't get a visa. It was because, well, I just discovered bars and drinking. Like, why would I go back <laughs> to not doing that again? So as soon as I was old enough to drink in the States, true story, um, I, I moved to the States. And the thing is that at that point, I was a technical director in Hollywood. I was an effects lead on a few projects. And when I go back to Australia, I realized like I've just achieved like my life goal. And this is what I mean. Like I could have probably set it a lot higher. But there was definitely a lot of depression at that point because suddenly, I, I, for the first time in my life, I didn't have direction. And this is why I think that it's so important to have a someday goal because, again, a lot of us that try to say, well, you can never do that. You can never achieve this. And a lot of, other, a lot of us love to put that in other people saying, well, you, you should think more realistic than that. In other words, lower your, your goals, which I hate so much. But the thing is that if your goals are realistic, then they're not big enough goals. What we should be doing is setting them so big that it's more of a general direction. It's not about, well, I need to be married with two kids and so specific. It's, you know, it's, I want to be doing this, this, and this. And that way, when other opportunities start to come along, at least you're aware of what your goals are. So when you see these other opportunities, you start to connect the dots. You start to say, 
oh, you know what? Like that's kind of similar to what I want. Like I should follow up with that person. You know, if if we don't have goals, then that's when the people who frustrate me the most I meet where they're saying, I'm just looking for that once in a lifetime opportunity. And it's just like, are you freaking kidding me? Like every day I go out, there's opportunity everywhere. I'm seeing that opportunity, you know, everywhere around me. But it's because I'm training myself to see opportunity that I'm willing to see opportunity everywhere. And from there, it's about saying, well, I could do this, I could do that. And not willing, not being afraid to say yes to everything. And then eventually we'll get to a situation where we can start to be more picky. But in the beginning, it's about exposing ourselves to as much as possible. So 21, I was definitely, um, I got, I definitely went through depression just because I, I didn't have a goal for once and I, I floated a little bit. Which is crazy with 21, you're already kind of <laughs> there. That's but, right. But then, but then you had like a different time frame. You basically had like this, like six years different to like, for example, me at the end, the end of the day. But that's just it. Like there's, there's no right or wrong path. Like some people are going to go and experience getting drunk and doing like, I'll, I'll say one quick thing that, um, like I said, I had a very weird career. So I, I quit school very early on. I started working in video games and it got to a point where all my friends were getting jobs and they were working at McDonald's or Pizza Hut and they had crappy jobs. And I was actually envious of them. Like I'd done some stuff with Disney. I'd done like a lot of small things here and there. And I actually wanted a crappy job. So I ended up quitting and I knew this was a temporary thing. It wasn't like, oh, I'm, I'm going in a different career direction. I'm going to go work at KFC, if you're familiar with that. So but that's what I did. I, I actually quit my career at uh, 16 and I went to work at KFC and I enrolled at a uh, university. And the thing is that this was always temporary. It's just, I wanted, and, and I guess that's another thing about me is I've always, I've never been afraid to experiment. So I was always willing to do stuff because to me, it's just like, well, I, I just want to go and experience that for a bit. So you had this impulse basically of, of I want this life. I like, I want to experience this normal life or this normal path to, yeah. so i can maybe say exactly. i like it or i don't like it but i don't want to have it hanging around me and like being maybe it wasn't even that it was just i just don't want to i just want to temporarily visit it so it wasn't like hey i just want to see if i like it or not it was just my friends all had a simple life of studying and going and working a crappy job and i kind of just wanted to experience that like i'd been around adults my entire childhood pretty much and um so i went and worked at kfc and I, I studied at college and I still remember, I think his name is Kelvin Baker, was like the, the multimedia teacher at the college. And he said, this is the easiest job in the world. I've got Alan just teaching like this 16 year old kid just teaching my class for me. <laughs> um, you know, he came from like using Power Animator and uh, he was teaching Maya, I think at the time. And, um, but the thing is, I, I was just going because I just want to be around people my age or, or people who are interested. In college, it was more about people who were interested in what I was interested in. So I was willing to pay money to be around those people, knowing that I couldn't get it otherwise. And I still think that for schools, like I'm not a big fan of schools, but I do think for being around other people who are on the same trajectory as you, like it's good for that. Um, and I, I don't regret KFC. Like it was a hard job and I hated it, but I was partying and dating people who I was working with. Like it was just a, a different lifestyle to this being stuck at home working, doing all this stuff. No one, none of my friends understood. And um, then I ended up quitting that, all that, moving across the country, working in games um, when I was 17. And it's the first time I ever got fired from a job. I was learning soft image and I hadn't really, I'd never lived on my own before. And I had uh, a hard time getting my living situation sorted out. And that 
another valuable lesson that whenever I hire people now and they're moving from another city, I always tell them to get their living situation covered first because even now, and like I see it in people where if they don't get that covered, it starts to affect their job, and it definitely affects. So stressful! Mine. It's so stressful. Yeah. So, um, so that was that was kind of tricky. But then I went back home for a year, and I was actually lecturing at university. And um, so there's a thing called uh, RPL, recognition of prior learning. So you can leverage the years of experience you have um, as credentials to get your um, what's it called? Uh, yeah, get your experience in college. So. Actually, one of my friends, Willie Hammers from Germany, um, he he was the first person to introduce me to that because he got a, deg a degree from a German university so he could work at Blur Studio in LA. Um, but I mentioned that just because, again, my friends are all now going to university and I'm lecturing at actually, in some cases, the same university as some of my friends. And it's always been this kind of weird disconnect. So that's what I mean. Like me growing up was always weird and i was always the youngest kid in, in the, the places i worked and then at around 25 that all became you know as things are caught up and everyone's doing it and it, it wasn't uh i wasn't living a weird thing anymore where it's like you're that kid who seems to know 3d and everything but definitely for the first 10 years of of doing this stuff like yeah it was it was odd because i was the youngest kid who was doing a lot of crazy stuff and um it kind of you know made me stand out in good and bad ways. Like as in some people are going to see it like you're just a kid, you don't know what you're talking about or, or vice versa. So, um, now, you know, now it's not, now it's not as big a deal. Like now there's, there's the young kid in the, in the room who, you know, I can reminisce about, but, um, but yeah, at the time it was, it was definitely quite weird when all my friends are going off and getting their career or even the fact that we talk about limitations. Like I grew up, you know, I feel like everyone's got their sub story about being poor, but um, my mom and I live on food stamps. We lived in a pretty rough, you know, place. And there's a lot of bad stuff that went on. But the main thing for me was that um, I never had that fast computer. I never had a computer in the first place. And there's a lot of stuff I missed out on. And it always made me appreciate the, the little things I did have. But even when I moved out of home, for me, it, it didn't mean that I could go back home because like I started paying rent when I was 14 with my mom. And so I remember being 16, 17 and, um, going out, getting my own place. And I'd, I'd hear my friends say like, oh yeah, I'm, I moved out. I'm living on my own now with my roommates. And if it doesn't work out, then I can always just go back home. And even then it's the same thing where it's just, for me, I was kind of envious of them because if I screw up, I'm homeless, um, you know, which actually happened while I was 17. And, um, but the thing is there's always stakes there. Whereas with other people, it's like, you can be half in half out. And I think that there's good and bad with that by setting stakes of like, if you fail, you're, you're failing as an adult. Whereas your friends, if they fail, they get to go home and be a kid and sit on the couch. So it's, it's always tricky. Um, you know, there's, there's no good or, you know, there's no right or wrong with this, but I think in a lot of ways it, it meant that these, the, the repercussions are a lot worse. So it means you got to make uh, the right decisions because you know, if, if you do fail and you can't pay rent, then you literally are going to be homeless and you've got to deal with that. And it forces you to, to really, uh, push yourself a lot more than you might if, you know, if it's not a big deal. Yeah. It's a, it's a little bit to the topic of chaos, basically. It's like, uh, in, 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 yeah. in your case, but then, I mean, that's a lot of times the situation you normally don't invite chaos into your life. It's not something that you want, you don't want, 
to be homeless at the end of the month if you cannot find a job or whatever. But that's basically what, what I was, or what we were talking about in the beginning is like, you sh sometimes should invite a little bit of chaos in your life because too much security will always, as you said, one one foot in, inside, one foot, one foot out outside will create a situation where you push not hard enough. And there is this, this thing in desperation, which I noticed is like when I was traveling and I had like a backpack and I was like couch surfing and had a tent in Scotland, for example. I was like, literally, I was desperate. I was six weeks there. I had um, 100 pounds, and which was like enough for, for food, but nothing else. Basically, I was like looking at the bread, bed and breakfast. And I was like, if I do that, I probably cannot afford three weeks of food, basically, you know. So, but, but this desperation made me A, creative. Um, B, there is something in your... In the way you talk that people want to help you there is this kind of aura and the way you, you're not you're not desperate you're not like please please give me something you're more like hey i'm not sure where i'm going to stay today kind of uh situation and people like you know just the way you speak i want to help you i it's it feels so fundamental in me to help you and this is something where i notice that's why i believe even if it's hard you should bring a little bit of chaos into your life. One, by moving somewhere else and then creating that. Um, or create a situation where you maybe are not 100% sure. I mean, you should create a security some way, you know. You shouldn't be like, I don't know, I quit my job and next week I will be like, see if I can like manage it or not. It's a little bit, a little bit, a little, maybe too much for most people. But just by changing your environment already, um, create chaos and that that way you can kind of inspire yourself a little bit yeah i think 100 percent. um i think it's about you know doing what scares you getting out of your comfort zone and, and pursuing those things but i also think it's about looking at the what ifs you know because I, I think that that's just it you know a lot of us are saying well i want to do this but i can't do that because of internal friction or external friction internal being I'm too scared. External would be that, well, I don't have a fast enough computer or whatever we want to externally blame as the reason. And the thing is that, let's say changing your career uh, when you're older, because I, I talk to a lot of people who are like, oh, well, I always wanted to do visual effects or artwork or whatever, but I can't because I'm 40 years old now and I've got kids and, you know, I guess that ship sailed. And that's just the, you know, one example of many, but the thing is, whether it's that or, or quitting your job and, and moving across the country to pursue a different thing, all of those things you can do, but common sense says that you should think about like, well, you know, what's the worst thing that could happen? And it's not to paralyze yourself and convince yourself not to, it's, it's to minimize the damage. So I had uh, someone used to email me all the time and they're like, just asking a lot of questions you know and and one day they they call me i don't know how they got my number but they called me and it's like hey alan i just moved to la and um i you know i quit my job and everything i moved to la and uh no one's hiring me and uh i'm now homeless someone stole my xbox that was a thing uh and i'm living in my car and i just remember it was like a sunday morning it was like 10 in the morning and he he was saying, what should I do? Should I give up my dreams and go back home? Or should I stick around? And this is, I, I got angry because, and I, I told him, I was like, you can't put this on me to make these decisions for you. 
And I, I told him exactly what he should have done, which is, well, why didn't you have a job lined up before you got here? You know, why didn't you do this? Why didn't you do that? And so it's common sense. Like if you want to go and pursue, you know, it's not like I told him to move across the country or anything, but he just saw it as like, hey, this person seemed to always solve my problems for me. Here's a new problem for you to solve. And the thing is, a year later, um, he did the exact same thing and had the exact same result and called me up again. And uh, my wife, who was my girlfriend at the time, um, pretty much banned me from responding to his emails because I was just getting so stressed um, having to be sucked into all of his, his problems. But even then, uh, the second time he managed to get my number and, and call me, you know, it was, it was pretty much like, what should I do? Should I give up? Should I do this? And, or, or should I keep sending my reel and trying to get a job? And, you know, this guy is considerably older than me as well. But for me, it was just like, look, what you should focus on is putting food on the table tonight. Like you shouldn't be worrying about your 3d career and everything else. It should be go get a job at Best Buy or wherever, just go get a job somewhere and get income. And that way you can afford a roof over your head and you can then start to think about, you know, the next step, which is get a job in 3D or whatever. And he took that literally, he went and got a job at Best Buy. Um, so, <laughs> He's know, listening but, to your advice, 100%. <laughs> but it's one of those things that, um, well, A, you can't put all your problems on everyone else to solve, but B, like the best thing you can do is have these big ideas of what you want to do and be willing to do them. But you need to also think of like, what is the worst case scenario? And it's not to convince yourself to walk away. It's not to convince yourself like, okay, yeah, like that's so scary. Maybe I shouldn't do this. It's about saying, okay, the worst case scenario, like out of everything, if I quit my job and I go do this other thing, my head could fall off and I could die, you know, or whatever, like whatever illogical thing that you're going to come up with. Because most of the time, it's a gut reaction. Like we're afraid to do something. We don't even put into words. We just feel it. We're like, oh, I can't do that. Like before I launched my podcast, uh, I was doing it on video. And I remember asking one of my friends who I thought was really charismatic. He's fun. He's outgoing. And I mentioned, hey, I'm, um, I've been interviewing a few people on camera, blah, blah, blah. And like his horrified look on his face. I, it wasn't like I was filming him. It was just the idea. Me mentioning it to him. He instantly started living this fear of like, no, I can't do this. And he's freaking out just from he would feel it just from the words of, hey, would you be interested in being interviewed on camera? So a lot of the times we don't even put it into words. We just feel it and we push away from it really quick. And a lot of times if you actually go and, and take the steps of putting it into words, that's when you start to realize how ridiculous it actually sounds. It's like, well, okay, I'm really afraid that if I quit my job, move across the country, let's say that... Um, you know, I'm going to be a failure. People are going to mock me. I'm going to die alone and like whatever extreme thing. But when you say that out loud as, as words, it's like, well, that's pretty unrealistic. Now I think about it, that's kind of silly, but what is the most ridiculous, like what is the worst thing that could happen to me? It's like, well, maybe I don't get a job. Maybe I go broke because of that. Maybe all these other things. And the thing is that that is actually possible. So now that you're actually able to paint the picture of the worst case, that's when you can start saying, well, what can I do to prevent that? Well, okay, um, if I want to move across the country and, and take a new job, change career, do all these outlandish things, before I get broke, maybe there's like a, a set amount of savings that I have that I can say, well, you know, once I get to 10 grand in the bank, that's when I realize that this isn't working out and I can go back to my old job. Before I get to zero and I'm sitting outside in my car with, with my Xbox stolen or, find, or whatever. Finding Alan's so, number and <laughs> calling him. Exactly. 
And, and that's just one of those things that the more that we understand what the worst case is, like the realistic, tangible one is, the more that we can minimize that risk. So when it comes to changing careers, maybe it is that you don't quit your job in Tom Cruise style and, you know, flip out and say, you know, I'm leaving who's coming with me. Maybe what you do is you decide, okay, well, maybe I'll, I'll work on a portfolio on weekends. I'll learn during the week, like in the mornings or at night. Uh, and then I'll start moonlighting or I tell my boss that I want to go on an, on vacation or if he says no, an unpaid vacation for a month and you contact the studio that you want to work with and you go and work for them for two or three weeks. They know the situation that you're trying this out and that's a chance for you to test the waters and see like, am I good enough? Do I even want to do this? Maybe I try it. And I'm like, I don't actually enjoy this at all. This is boring. I'm not an artist. I'm an operator. So the more that we're able to minimize the risk, the more that we're able to safely do what we're going to do and safely transition to that new career without that worst case scenario being so bad. And also having savings or all these other things, it means that, okay, when I do it, you know, it's not the worst case scenario. I've got something to fall back on. Maybe when I quit my job, I don't do it you know, that way. I actually do it in a nice way where they say you're always welcome back and say, well, you know what, let me try to follow my dreams for three months. If it doesn't work out, I'd like to you know, give you a call. Is the door still open? Um, that's always an opportunity as well. So that's the main thing most of us don't do is we, we just go from one extreme to the other or we convince ourselves never to do it in the first place, thinking that that you know, worst case thing or that gut reaction that we have um, is, is going to happen. And so we're too afraid. So we think that ship sailed. I'm better off just sticking with what I know. To be honest, like I think, I think the guy is a little bit on the wrong career path. I think she should be private investigator. I mean, like this is amazing. Yeah. It's not so easy to find a private number. You have to kind of be a little. I'm, bit... I'm learning. I think my my phone number, at least, uh, I haven't cut a new reel in a long time, but I'm pretty sure that's probably how we got it. I don't know, but like I have, I do get that. Um, where at least in the past, I've, I've gotten people call me where I answer the phone and they say, "Is this Al McKay?" and I'll be like, yeah. And they're like, really? And I'm like, yeah. They're like, okay, cool. Bye. And hang up. And then, then I, I have to think about like, what just happened? So uh, it, you know, <laughs> it happens from time to time. Just because we talk, we talk about chaos and, and bringing a little bit of, you know, the limitations out of you doesn't mean you have to be crazy. You don't have to be stupid. You don't have to be, but it has to be push you in a way. So I think what you were basically saying is find the limitation that you can work with. Because like you basically, for you, it was okay to, to stop school, you know, not going because you were like, you know, I don't care about this. This is not important for me. It is a risk. There is, I'm pretty sure there was some fear in you. I don't, I'm pretty sure it was not like 100% like I don't care at all because you grow up with this and then suddenly leaving something comfort is always a little bit of stressful. But for you, it was not much as, as big as of a deal as it was for me, for example. Uh, from culture, I'm a German. I was talking with that with Sabine for us. Education. It is, if you don't do education, you're really on the really crazy side. He did ask if I would stay at the company, but you know, I, I guess that's maybe just me, but I, I was like, nope, education first has to be finished. You can finish education and then you can do whatever. That's already crazy, but not finishing education. It's definitely on the really crazy side for us, like culturally or so, but what I believe, like you just say, said, and I, and I, I feel the same way is find the elements that you can work with like find the the kind of chaos that you can work with for example i can work with traveling i can work in a different place i can tomorrow i can decide i'm i'm um, living in wellington 
uh, next day I can decide I'm living in Tokyo. A lot of people telling me like, oh, Alex, like I could never do that. Yeah, because for you, that is your your extreme, your fear, where you like feel on the edge, where you will be, you know, like stressed, just stressed just by doing it, you know. But for me, it is stress in a way. It is there is something in me, but I'm more afraid of not having enough money. So I would be more afraid of moving and not sure, like American style a little bit, not sure where my next paycheck is coming next month because that's something I'm not used to as a as a as a German. I'm I I felt always safe. I've never had. Once in my life, I had minus on my bank account. And um, that was super stressful for me. But this is something where I would be afraid of, you know, if I would not sure like next month. But as you said, this is something where I would like have a plan. Because, for example, I can work with um, tomorrow, like traveling to the US, don't know where I'm staying and then improvising on the spot because that's that's not a fear of mine. But uh, tomorrow traveling to the US and not knowing where I have my next paycheck next week, would be something I would be extremely stressed to a, to a degree of non-acting. Basically to a degree of like, I don't know what to do. I'm basically not even thinking about Target or McDonald's or KFC or something. So big, but more like, uh, I need to find ILM or Pixar who's hiring me. Else I don't know what was going on. And I think that's that's what it, what it is about is like, find your, your, your points of which can you handle and which not, and you can, which you can handle Put them a little bit on the test, and if there are elements that you are, have high hard time with, make sure you come at least prepared on that way. You know, save money, um, have options, um, have a safety net for for like friends there or something like that. But I think that's just the balance that you have to do is kind of push yourself, but make sure that your fear, your really fearful elements are are, are kind of like you, you remember this pyramid of needs. You know, like at the bottom is always your body, like, you know, health and stuff. And then uh, basically like that. And some people are are not as stressful with that, you know. Um, some people like, you know, can, can run in gang uh, areas and they're like, I, I'm not, I don't care. Just to add to that, that's, that's also the flip side, just like our friend who uh, became homeless is that there's also this naivete that people have where um, they quit their job and move across the country and end up living homeless because they didn't think about well, what is the worst thing that can happen? Which is the same thing as walking in a dangerous neighborhood. And and you might look at it as like, wow, that person's fearless. But it's the naivete that they're not even aware that, you know. <laughs> you're not fearless if you don't know you're not, you, you, don't, you shouldn't be that, fearless. That's exactly it. But the, the last thing I'll, I'll add to this is that, um, yeah, you're right. It's, it's about removing or minimizing that risk. And with you mentioning traveling, um, money is the thing that removes that risk about, well, where am I going to stay? Because worst case scenario, if I don't have a place to stay, as long as I have money in my account, I can get a hotel. I can, I can get a flight home or something. Um, I've done what you've done. Uh, my Facebook status used to be, for about two years, homeless with dollars and a passport. And that's because I literally, uh, I had a duffel bag and that's all I had. And uh, I didn't have like a, a place to live. I just traveled the world and, and did whatever. And I love that freedom. Uh, it was also really enjoyable only owning what I had in my, like what I could carry, uh, not like a big suitcase, just literally what I could carry in, in, in my bag. And, um, that, that was so great that, you know, you had all these opportunities because a project comes up. It's like, yeah, I'll be there tomorrow. You know, I'll, I'll hop on a plane, I'll fly out. Like 
Um, a lot of times I get employers to pay for my accommodation, you know, whatever it would be. And the rest of the time I'd just spend, this is pre Airbnb, but, um, I would just spend money on, uh, you know, a hotel room. And yeah, I mean, in a lot of ways, someone could see it as scary for me. It meant that it was just freedom. You could do whatever the hell you wanted, like literally anything you wanted to do. And it's also like, it, it eases everything in the future, basically, because for example, if you do that, like the next time you do something a little bit more extreme, it's easier because you did that. I mean, for me, it was the same thing. I was like six weeks and I think I was never as afraid as I was at the airport before my flight to Edinburgh. I was like, I was literally having this backpack six weeks, flight there, flight back. That was safe. Six weeks, I have a backpack. I had kind of uh, couch surfing, but it was first time, so I didn't know. I had like a tent. That's it. Nothing else. Two or uh, 100 pounds. And after one day of miserability, like a really miserable day, it was rainy and whatever, I decided, you know what? I go to the north of Scotland. Whatever happens, happens. And I take my, and it was, one of the best trips I've ever did. I, after this mind shift, I noticed how much things just rolled. And it ended up doing like having situations where, for example, like half a year later, I went uh, for a date half of Europe and I didn't know where to stay. I just, it just like, well, literally went to Amsterdam for a date just because like, fuck it. And I didn't know what, what was going on. And, um, but this was a step after Scotland. Because I needed this step first to get to this step of, you know, I will do that because I want to experience life. I want to try things out. And there's a lot of things in that also career-wise, you know, moving away from a company, uh, approaching your own career, maybe your own company, your own whatever. I feel like there's this, you have to do the steps in between too. You shouldn't jump too far ahead, you know, like, um, and always check with your fears. Basically, what you said. Speaking out loud and and identify it's one. Am I okay with that, or am I, or is it, does it make me really anxious about that? And I feel you you did a great point on that one. When I'm anxious about something, that's when I know I got to do it. Yeah. Uh, I think there's a few times I've seen something on on TV, and instantly I'm like, holy crap! Like I feel like mm. I'm scared, and then I'm like, now I have to do that because it scares me. So I think it's sometimes a good way to look at things too. Yeah, I like this one. Do one thing every day that scares you. Could be a small thing, but let's try at least that. And I mean, we forget, we get lazy after a while, but every time I'm, I'm trying to remind myself and push, push this kind of things and uh, create this environment. Welcome to our short mid-episode coffee break. If you love the content and would like to have a successful career in the film or games industry yourself, check out my website, 21artistshow.com. There you can find helpful articles, masterclasses, and coaching opportunities that help dozens of my students to bring their profession to the next level. That's all. Check out 21artistshow.com and share the podcast with cool people you know. Let's continue with the episode. One thing I have, and I'm not sure if you have that too, or maybe you... you because you're kind of a party, more of a party guy, it seems to be from, at least from, from the old days. I used to be, I used to be. I, I had people tell me like, uh, they're so excited to party with me when they meet me in Mexico or wherever. And, and then they tell me I'm such a letdown. And I'm like, yeah, I was a party guy at 23. Like I'm freaking 40 something now. So like, <laughs> give me, give me a break. Is there something where, where you, you feel like you have in a 
external value that you feel like this helped you to kind of push you forward and get social and get out of there? Because that I think that's something everyone struggles if they move to a new city. Very typical. You move to Vancouver, London, you don't know anyone. And then you're like, suddenly you have this job, but you are in your small flat every night and you're watching tutorials afterwards, probably. And then you, you have a problem of connecting, you feel alone and stuff like that. Is there something that you have as a, as a kind of mentality that you feel give you a good view of life and energy energize you to go out let's say with socializing first of all i, I think that like if you're happy going home and watching tutorials every night and doing that like if if you generally are happy doing that then great that's awesome um if you're miserable and you wish that you had friends and you wish you know all these other things then then that's different so um i think that the number one skill no matter who you are you should have is to be a good communicator and I'll say that like me growing up, like, uh, me at, you know, even in my early twenties, like I, if anyone described me, they'd say I'm pretty outgoing, but secretly, you know, I'm, I can definitely be, or had been a, a shy person. Like I used to be envious. Like I go to a bar and I've, I've definitely told the story before, but like I go to a bar and, and if I got there early before my friends got there, like I would be so uncomfortable because the five minutes I'm waiting for them to show up, like I could feel my neck getting stiffer and stiffer because I'm just, you know, not wanting to look around the room and and not, you know, able to be comfortable. Um, and I would look at, let's say like the old crazy guy at the end of the bar who uh, is just talking to themselves and they don't give a shit. They're just having a blast being crazy. And I'd always kind of be secretly envious of that person who is just don't care in the world. Whereas with me, like I just feel like I'm, you know, I'm by myself. I don't know how to talk to people. And I realized that like, I was very envious of people who would go to Tenerife on a, you know, a flip of a dime or whatever. And, and decide to do all that because for me, like that sounded so petrifying. And so you mentioned moving to Vancouver and I was going to take a job at Activision in Vancouver. Uh, I decided to close my studio when I was in my late twenties, I think I was 29, something like that. And I realized that things were going so well that I'd probably be doing this the rest of my life. And that's when I realized, well, I want to be irresponsible for just a little bit longer before I lock myself down. The word is and irresponsible. So <laughs> it, it, it's definitely got to be that word too, because it, it was, it was that I just want to travel and, and have fun a bit more before I'm locked down to anything. And I think that's kind of been the recurring theme my whole life in a lot of ways. But um, what I decided to do the week before I moved to Canada was I decided to go back to my hometown, the small little town that I'm from. And uh, I just want to go there by myself and just have some fun. And it was also a way to kind of push myself to go out. Like, I'm going to go out to a restaurant by myself. I'm going to go out to a bar by myself. And to me, that was really intimidating and terrifying. So I went and did that. And I ended up having the craziest week ever. It was so awesome. Uh, I knew everyone in town by the end of the week. And, and it was kind of like setting the first step in what I ended up doing when I moved to Canada, um, every single night I made it a rule to go out at least for an hour. And it became a regular thing where I would go out usually at, um, 11 o'clock at night and I'd come back at two in the morning and I would just do this seven days a week. And the whole rule was in the beginning that, um, I couldn't, you know, I would go out by myself and the whole point was that I just need to show up. I just need to be by myself and out there. And in the beginning, I'd be uncomfortable. I'd be drinking too much just to stay comfortable. But after a while, I started noticing 
through doing that more that um, I preferred going out by myself than I preferred going out with my friends. Because if I go out with my friends, I'm anchored to one table. Like, you know, you have a waitress, especially in North America, and they'll get you your drinks. And I hated having a waitress. I, I want to go to the bar because I can meet people at the bar. I can meet people on the way to the bar. And for me, it just became a muscle. The more that I did this, the more I became comfortable doing it, where I liked going out by myself because you don't know where the night could go. When the bartenders all finished for the night, they're like, hey, we're going to this other bar. We're going to keep drinking. Come on with us. Or uh, I'd make some friends. And just the possibilities would be limitless. And that that was more me doing the the one thing that I could identify as like scaring the shit out of me every every time would be going out by yourself. And knowing that I made that pact that when I moved to Canada, I wasn't going to have that anymore. And it, it meant that every night I would I would work that muscle. And it meant that after that, I, I would be so uh, comfortable just going out anywhere and being around anyone rather than being like, well, I don't know any of these people or I don't know where I'm going. It's just you, you adapt to the situation. So I think that in a lot of ways, no matter what career I'm in, learning to be able to do that where it's really just a being comfortable with yourself. It's not about being confident, outgoing and extrovert or any of these things. For me, it's more if, if I'm comfortable going out with myself, then it means that I'm comfortable sitting in the corner reading a book. I'm comfortable talking to a bunch of strangers. I'm comfortable going up to a group of people, whatever it, it could be. And that I think is just such a valuable life skill. Like everyone should learn. And obviously, you you know uh, have experienced that you going out and doing all all these um, things that would terrify other people. Like obviously, you've learned that skill yourself. I mean, yes, and I always feel like I'm falling back. You know, it's it's I'm not sure if you have that. I mean, COVID was probably a fallback for for a lot of people afterwards. Sometimes it feels it's so much time to really get an essence of this skill you know i can i can change my attitude to be social but it 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 costs me much more energy than if i'm you know in the in the flow and uh for a while going so i know i can but i sometimes feel like so tired and i'm not sure and i have to think basically if you think that's when you're lost basically you know when you when you have to think what you have to say and stuff like that so I'm curious about that because I feel like it brings us back to to a little bit of choice. How do you approach this kind of things? Do, do you really mentally go through this? Oh, I'm afraid of that. I really want to. I need to find a strategy to do that. I mean, that applies for everything. It's literally like I want to go to 3D. I want to work on films. I want to be social. Is there is that something that you really analyze, or is that more just like against the the fear? Or how do you approach that? I think it's curiosity because uh, I, I think that, you know, a lot of times, like I was actually thinking about this the other day that like there's probably, I think it's like one or two partners I've had earlier in my life where they would get annoyed with me if, if we're, we're talking about something and I don't know it, I'd go and Google it. And because they'd see it like, oh, you're trying to prove me wrong. And, um, and was, I was just thinking about this the other day, but it was just one of those things that for me, it's like, no, it's curiosity. Like if I don't know something, I want to go know the answer. And if anything, I wouldn't understand why they, they don't know, but then they're satisfied not knowing. It's just like, well, it takes two seconds. Like, you know, how old was De Niro when he, you know, did that movie or whatever stupid thing it might be. But I think curiosity is something where it's like, yeah, I'd love to try that. And at least by trying it, you can then decide whether or not you want to do it, whether you want to jump off a cliff a second time uh, without a parachute, <clears throat> but uh, there won't be a second time. But that that is one of those things that by doing it, then you can make a decision about it. Opposed to, I think, 
you know, kind of ties into everything we're talking about. You don't know something, that's usually the driver of fear. And on top of that, if you don't know something, then how do you know if you're not good at it or if, you know, because I always want to do music, but I'm, I'm probably terrible at it. You know, that's, that's the sort of stuff that drives me insane. I want to strangle those people because it's like, well, why don't I go and try it? And then I can decide. Like, I'm terrible at music, but I think it's more that I'm just not driven to put the time in to get better at it. And I think that anyone can be good at anything. Um, a good example, I was just talking about this like two weeks ago, and I'm jokingly saying that uh, Will Smith went back in time and, uh, you know, ripped off my conversation because like um, I was talking about uh, the two tennis players, Venus and I've forgotten her other name, the um, two female tennis players. I can't remember their damn names, but they're the best in the world. Um, this is bugging me. Williams? I'm, I'm Googling this real quick. Yeah. Uh, Vanessa, sorry. Not Vanessa. Uh, yeah, you're absolutely right. Uh, what's the other one? It's... Um, now, now the Googling part is coming. The curiosity <laughs> part is coming, you know, <laughs> kicking hard. That's right. So, uh, Serena and Venus Williams. So um, I was talking about their dad, how it's kind of funny that they get all this clout, but it's actually their dad being obsessed. Because like this story seems to be not that mainstream. And it's basically their dad had read this article about the 10,000 hour rule. And that story about the guy who came up with the 10,000 hours to become an expert, um, his whole story is really fascinating where he raised three uh, female chess champions and he did that on purpose. Yeah. Uh, the whole story is really fascinating, but then uh, Venus and um, I already forgotten her name. Yeah. But, but the Williams sisters, they, they did the same thing where um, the dad, read that article and decided, well, I want, I want to uh, raise these two, uh, tennis champions. So from the beginning, it was, you're essentially manufacturing greatness through, you know, hard work, but unfortunately it's the hard work of your children, which is a whole other parenting discussion. But the thing is that, um, I hadn't ever heard anyone really talk about him, the father and, um, and that whole story. And it's just interesting that the very next day is literally the next day, Will Smith, um, uh, the trailer for his movie came out, which is exactly it. It's about the father and, and their whole journey. And uh, so instantly, as soon as um, the trailer started, they even hadn't even announced what it was really about. That was the whole hook. And I was just like, oh, crap, this is exactly what I was talking about. And um, yeah, so I, I think that that in its way is, uh, you know, you can be good at anything. It's just about putting in the time to be good at it. And I think that you know, whether it's Williams or whether it is the original guy who came up with the concept and every other person who um, is going to follow that 10,000 hour rule. It's, it's, you can be good at anything. You've just got to be willing to put in the time to be good. Passion plays a huge role at, it's more about being able to stick with it. But most people just disregard it as like, well, I'm not born that way. And, and a good example, going back to programming. Well, I can't program because I'm not good at math. I am a high school dropout. I never went to school. Uh, I never knew about equations or variables or anything. I learned all that by saying, okay, I'm in Maya. How's this Mel crap work? And having to figure it all out for myself. But the thing is, you can do anything. It's easier to make the excuse than to actually put in the hard work. Because at 10,000 hours is a lot more work than saying, eh, I'm just not born that way. But that's why excuses are always going to rule over 
putting in the work. Yeah, actually, I have sometimes the same issue. To, like, I, I like to ask questions, especially if if I'm still like learning about something, and I get this like, get the situation uh, more often than I than I want. Is kind of where people getting annoyed because they feel attacked by me. If you want to give me information, then then be prepared to either say that's how much I know or like fill the blanks with that, you know, and it, I, I have the same sometimes with the curiosity part where curiosity can sometimes become annoying for other people. <laughs> um, the last thing I'll, I'll add, because, you know, I, I've, I've learned, I've had to learn to train my, I've had to train myself to form opinions about people because it's very, it's very easy when I meet someone. I, I noticed this about myself that if they're very opinionated and very negative, I'll think, oh, they're very knowledgeable. And I've had to to really go out of my comfort zone or, or be very conscious of my opinions I make of people because I found that that's one, one kind of slip up of mine where there's so many people I'll meet who are very negative all the time, like, oh, that's crap and that's so crap and the, you know, this is a failure and that program is really crappy because of this and that. And the more that they tear things down, the more I'm like, wow, like they obviously know more than I do about the subjects because... I thought it was really good, but clearly they know more than me because they're telling me how bad it is because of this feature is crappy and that's crappy, you know? And, um, that's when later on, I realized like, wait, a year later, like that person doesn't actually know what they're talking about. So, so that's been one of those things that, um, through realizing later, I've, I've had a few bad hires or, um, you know, friends of mine who, I thought we were so knowledgeable. It turns out like they just are really negative people. Uh, I just, I just found that kind of pattern to be one that now I've, I've got to train myself when I meet people to go in with a blank slate and form an opinion based on, you know, asking questions rather than making the assumption like, wow, like they seem to, to be so adamant. And I think that when you think about it, like the, the more that someone is so sure of themselves, the more that you then think, well, clearly, they must have done their research and everything else. But if they're so sure of themselves, it, it sometimes is because that's just how they're built. They're like, I don't know what I'm talking about, but I'm just going to spit out my opinions. And then they're, they're now fact. And, you know, you're wrong if you ever try to challenge me on that. And um, that's, that's just kind of an interesting observation for me that I've realized that the more that you ask questions, the more that you can get a better understanding as to like how people maybe got that solution. And sometimes it is that they just decided one day that this is the way instead of like, Oh yeah, well actually it's because I worked on this project and this one, and we ran into these issues and bit by bit, I realized that like, that's not the best, you know, opportunity or whatever. I, I noticed that I'll be a lot more reserved with giving opinions about things than making a statement. And, um, you know, it's not like one's better or the other, but, you know, it's, it's definitely something I'll observe and I've had to like really stop myself about making those uh, opinions about other people that like, wow, they're brilliant. I've got to let them really uh, earn that that thing rather than just assuming because they were so negative and opinionated. That would be fantastic for me. Then, then you would say like, hey, Alex, like you're, you're, you're the best, your best guy ever. <laughs> because that's, that's, that's <laughs> like, like two mistakes I, I did in the last years. And I noticed that kind of um, is, a, I, I sometimes were too negative and I, I like I had I had a vision a lot of times, even if I was like junior or whatever, I still had like a passion and a vision and I couldn't communicate that. And I felt like I'm always punching against the wall. And then after a while, you become a little bit bitter and you kind of become this like negative uh, element. And I'm like, 
reflecting i was like fuck that man what was what was i'm going for and the second one is like actually something i i started to really resent is um asking too many questions actually you can ask too many questions and uh, i noticed why it is a negative part it is negative if you if you ask the question because you don't want to think about it if you basically kind of you just ask the question because you're too lazy someone asks you like what should i do i'm, I'm here in la it's like, yeah you didn't you didn't do your homework. You didn't thought about the situation. It's like, literally, if someone asks you, what should I do in my career? What should I do in my relationship? Everyone has to find their own answer. You can ask for opinions, you know, like, what do you, what do you think? But the thing is, I notice this something super negative if I ask people to solve my problems through questions. How should I solve that? Or how should I do that? Or what should I do here? And I noticed it became so, so much that I felt out of control of my own environment. And I started to annoy uh, some people because they feel I'm always just just coming to them to just that they solve my problem because I, I want to ask questions. But from me, from my point of view, it was always just I want to make sure that this is correct because I'm not in charge. I don't know what you exactly want. And so I want to make sure it is, it is right because I'm not 100% sure what you want. Um, and I was more on the side of I'm afraid to make a mistake. So instead of not making a mistake, I try to get as much question in as I can. And I noticed actually these two elements of being negative, as you mentioned, um, and asking too many questions really became something I really despised in myself. And um, and I noticed that something that I really hate with others now is like literally because I, I, I know I know exactly if someone did his homework or not. 100%. I always know from the way the question is like formulated, when it's asked and stuff like that. So I think these are like very two strong, important elements of don't be too negative. Even if you don't like it, try to figure out uh, like something for yourself, you know, or leave. Um, and the second one is um, I always say, write the question, email or whatever, um, and then don't send it. Wait an hour or a day, something like that. I tell you, 90% of the time, I find the solution. If it's a programming question, if it is a, like, I'm not sure about uh, like this shot or whatever, 90% of the time, I have the question there. I still in my pop-up. And then like one hour later, mm, it's obvious. People will do that. Um, I, I've had a lot of discussions with people who get asked a lot of questions a lot about this because I think that people need to learn how to ask questions properly. But part of that is that um, I've seen people who are serial question askers in the sense that not, not, in, not in what you're describing yourself. No, no, no. But uh, in the sense that they'll go on, let's say, Facebook and say, hey, how do I do this thing? And then someone is spending 30 minutes writing a reply. And then they're in another Facebook group saying, how do I do this other thing? And and they've never once. That's what I mean. Not you, because uh, what they're doing is they're just sucking up everyone else's time. And they're not even like someone spends an hour writing a reply. They they don't even read it. They're already moving on to the next thing. They're just firing out questions and, and sucking everyone else's time. Now, the difference is that um, the best way to ask a question to someone to get a response, especially a busy person, because I, I think a lot of people are very naive. They think that this person has all the time in the world and they have nothing else going on. And I've had to explain to people sometimes that okay, for me to reply to your email, usually I'm going to sit down and spend about 30, 40 minutes like writing a really in-depth response. Now, if I were to answer six emails that day, that's pretty much my entire day, almost my entire day gone. 
And I haven't actually done any work today. It's literally being answered these couple of things. Now multiply it by the amount of people emailing you and everything else. You got to put yourself in the shoes of that person. And on top of that, knowing that a lot of people will come along, fire out emails, like, how do I do this thing? And then walk away and then go and ask it again somewhere else or, or a different question altogether. You've got to think, well, how, how do I make them know that I'm going to appreciate the answer? In other words, like validate why they should take this long to, to respond. And usually it is that it's like dating or anything else. You go in, you ask a simple question, you get a simple answer back, you build rapport. You don't just go in saying, you know, figure out my lifelong calling or whatever it might be, or how do I write this program? And from there, you, you go in and say, hey, I've tried to do this thing. I've tried this, this, this. These didn't work. What I'm looking for is like, what would I do here? At least then it showed that you put in some effort first. Now, if you were to come along and say, um, you know, how do I do this? They reply. That's when you can come back and say, thank you so much, which 90% of people don't do. They never thank you for the hour you just spent um, replying to them. You come back and say, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. And um, I went and applied that and I got this far and, and um, you know, this all makes sense. The one thing that I don't, don't get is this. I know you're busy, but I would really appreciate it. Like if you could just help me out with this one other thing, at least you're showing that the last time they helped you, you actually applied that and put it into action because that way they know that like, okay, if I help you, you're actually going to use that information rather than just throwing it out. One of the things that drives me insane at the moment, which is becoming a big thing, I've seen it a lot in, on YouTube comments, is like they'll make a blanket statement like, hey, Alan, um, oh, actually, there's a really good one that will apply to you as a technical director. Is um, I, I was I had a video on uh, what a technical director does. And I, I basically said, you know, that, um, you know, you're, you're creating the buttons that everyone can push to you know, to you know, creating tools that everyone needs. And this way it makes you irreplaceable at your studio because you're supporting a team of artists. And by doing that, it means that you're incremental. It means that you're one of the last people to get let go because you're able to serve so many different people. I agree hundred percent. That's exactly what I'm pra praising too. So one person came along and said, yeah, but as soon as you've made all those tools, they don't need you anymore. Prove me wrong. And what they're doing is they're making a, a blank statement of their fear. They're putting in a way of saying, you're wrong because of this. And then you've, they're trying to stay, stay in a way that you need to go and put in effort to try and convince them otherwise. And again, the rule of the internet is that there's always going to be someone who's got way more time on their hands than you. I always follow the rule that I'm too busy. And this is most of the people I know are having problems like this person said this online or this or this. For me, it's just like, well, if I'm really busy, I don't have time to reply to every little person. And because of that, like I'm not going to go out of my way to try and convince someone that they're wrong about this blanket statement that they're putting out there. And usually I'll just say, like, is that what you really think? Because I'm more shocked that like if that's how they think, then the the issues they have are way beyond whether they should be a TD. It's that they've got the scarcity mindset about everything. The one last thing I'll add is that one thing that I actively think about is I wish I asked more questions. And there's times I go to a conference and I've got some friends who are just phenomenal question askers. And it's one of those things that for me, I was just surprised that I caught myself thinking like, wow, I, I wish I was better at asking questions because they'll say, oh, well, like, have you ever tried this? Or, you know, what about this thing here? And they'll ask about their business, they'll ask about a lot of stuff. And 
that to me, like I've, I've always appreciated that about them. Like, wow, that was really good. Like I, I wish I would actually stop and um, spend more time like asking questions and learning about them. And I think that, you know, again, it comes back to what I was saying before that there's ways to validate how, like, if you are asking a lot of technical questions, then it's more about uh, showing them that you have an understanding about their logic, not, well, why are you doing this? That seems right. Because some people will interpret that as you're saying that they're wrong, but it's saying, oh yeah, I love that idea. I had something similar, but I wasn't getting that result. I was curious, how did you do, you know, what, what got you to come up with that solution or whatever? And that way they maybe either feel as, as it's an interrogation as they do feel like you're wanting to borrow knowledge from them or see them as a, you know, a, a thought leader or whatever. So I think sometimes people, when they get asked questions, they, they see it as maybe this person's attacking me or whatever insecurities they have. So I think, again, like the more that you run a podcast, the more that you're getting in the head of the, the guest because you've got to put them at ease a lot of the time. And most of the time they are going to be uh, uncomfortable or, you know, there's times I'll, I'll say to certain people, especially if they have a public profile, like I just interviewed the head of um, DNEG Global and um, she used to run Digital Domain, a bunch of other studios. And first thing I said to her is like, nothing's live. We can edit anything out later on we want. And instantly she's like, oh, thank you for telling me that. Like, you know, it, it's good to know that now rather than thinking like whatever I say, if I, you know, put my foot in my mouth that, uh, you know, it's canon. So sometimes it's about understanding, I, th I think in general with everything, what people's concerns are and being able to address them. And that way they're able to, you know, put the defenses down and just be themselves. When I was researching for our conversation, I was looking at your podcast. I was Whoa, so many episodes. Like I'm, I'm, I'm literally at episode seven, you know, eight. Um, now starting with eight and stuff like that. So I'm like three hundred plus. And he had Christo. I want Christo. <laughs> I was such a, like, I love, I love this guy. He's one of one of my my favorite. This is a buddy of mine. We nearly shared an office together. Um, in fact. I'll say this, like, uh, Chris invited me to, uh, rent an office in his studio. And I, it's kind of interesting. I, I ended up turning it down, but I did it in a way that I would disqualify myself. And this is pretty much like, uh, it's a long story, but just financially, I, I decided I didn't want to be renting an office at that one point in time. And, um, so I ended up like basically saying this a ridiculously low fee like i only want to pay like 80 bucks a month rent or something for a, you know an la office in santa monica um but i had no idea at the time that he was doing the future and all the stuff that he's doing now which i think would have interested me a lot more because at the time i knew him from blind because we we already knew each other uh we had a lot of mutual friends um and we'd done some collaborative stuff together but it was all to do with blind his uh design studio and you know, I was like, okay, it'll be cool to have like a really cool office to do all the things that I'm interested in. But if I had known he was doing all his career stuff that I had no idea about until after he was a guest on my Fantastic. podcast. Fantastic. Like the future yeah. is like one of my favorite YouTube he's, channels. He's great. And when we were talking earlier about, um, you know, getting people to answer questions, like how to ask a question and get an answer, that was more Matt and Cena and I talking about that. Cause like, I know how um, he gets hit up a lot for questions. There's something that like the two of us, um, both of us get a lot of people asking questions who they'll ask it and it'll be a very broad question. And then they just don't even say thank you. And so that the whole time I'm talking about that, I'm thinking about Matt who isn't at 
the future anymore. But you know, for the longest time, he was the creative director there. So I saw his um, desktop. Uh, you that that was where where he blow up and his your YouTube channel is like yeah, where he did he, like this desktop setup and it was amazing. He's a designer. I think he's a DIY desktop setup and that yes. gets like ten million views or something. Yeah, crazy it was and, incredible. Yeah, no, no, but <laughs> that's what I mean. Is like I was looking at your content. and I was like, you're so far away from my content. For example, let's compare like podcasts. For example, seven episodes to three hundred uh, plus episodes, and like with all the people that you had on your podcast. But that's not what it is about. At the end of the day, you know, I was exactly. like, I was like, I'm super happy to have Alan on the show. That was what it's about. I'm super happy to be here. You surround yourself with people and you have a successful career and I'm super happy that, to have you here. So it's not about like, you know, that I, that I need like 200 episodes. I need to be in Hollywood. I need to do that. I need to do that. It's about to learn how to ask questions because sometimes I also have this impulses of, I would like to, to push a little bit on that part. And I would like to, but, but on the end of the day is like, I decided in the beginning of the show, I want that my, my, my guests are comfortable. We can have a cool discussion. We can have a literally like fight in a way, but it should be comfortable. We disagree. Um, and, and that's it. And for me, this is something I, I, I feel like helps much more myself because at the end of the day, I'm I'm not here not to create YouTube videos or like podcast episodes. I'm here because I uh, like to talk to you and I like to like ask you a question and have a discussion about things and maybe learn something new. Like you know, like because again, I was not expecting that you that you like just skipped high school and and just kind of like rebellion thing. I know that you 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 had a crazy career, but uh, that was something I was. Basically, as you said in the beginning, you know, like you you do this this beginning question and suddenly it spirals out of control and the whole episode is suddenly about <laughs> choices and stuff like that. So that is what I like. And I feel like asking questions is one of the most important skills I, I did. And I think also that was one of the reasons we actually started this episode because I wrote you an email and asked basically questions in, in, a, in a way I tried to be like, hey, I want that you understand that I care. I know I want that you understand that I I know who you are. You know, it's not just like I'm, I'm like solve my problems or I want you on the show or something like that. And that was important for me. I, I sorry, um, I didn't mean to interrupt, but uh, yeah, I mean, I was going to mention that. I just figured maybe you didn't want to hear it, but um, yeah, I mean, I remember the week that I got your email. I had I think three because it was four, I think total. Uh, requests for interviews and yours is the one that I decided to do just because uh, I remember talking to my assistant about this that um, I, was, I was saying that yours is the best like probably the best presented um, email that I'd seen in a long time in terms of putting in the work to actually you know talk about who you are who the other guests are uh, what it's about um, as well as the the one thing that again Matt and Cena and I talked about a lot, which was that you communicated how busy the other person would be, and it's not about me saying, "Well, I'm so busy, important slash whatever." You know, it's it's more that um, it shows that that person gets it. Where and and that's kind of like a general rule for us is that if someone puts zero effort into writing an email, I'm going to put zero effort into responding. But um, there's been so many times where my assistant she's come along and said. Alan, you have to reply to this person because like the amount of effort they put into the email. And it just kind of shows not that they wrote a long email. That doesn't mean effort. That means lack of effort, just you know, typing away anything that comes to mind. But when 
the other person understands like you are busy and you know I'm, I'm not expecting a response but you know i'm hoping for you know that maybe i'm lucky or whatever then that's usually where it's like okay cool like at least you acknowledge the other person's busy um and in your case like just the way that you front-loaded the work as well as communicated like i understand how busy you are it um th those couple of things made it where you're the only interview that i decided to to respond to and say yeah let's do it um even though also uh again you can edit this out or not but like i've never had to do like a preliminary thing either which um i can completely respect because it's it's about like hey let's actually figure out what we want to talk about and everything too but um so even though there there's definitely more steps um in the process it was something that i'd be willing more willing to invest in rather than if someone was just blanket like come on my podcast then it's just it's like you know there's a lot of those opportunities that pop up um and that's also to you one of the first things i noticed about um all your interviews is like how did you get the guests to like shoot their camera perfectly instead of just a crappy webcam and now i understand <laughs> but that that was something that stood out i was just like wow like this looks like a professional interview um you know usually the the guests in visual effects have no thought about that they're just like hey is this crappy webcam okay i'm doing it over wi-fi and the microphone's next to my laptop which is rendering in nuke right now so it's got this loud fan just going brr the whole time so you know, um yeah so again it's just you know that little bit of extra effort is what went like a long way to stand out compared to everyone else yeah thank you very much because there's there's like there was effort in, in the whole process also learning how to write uh, emails how to communicate with people i mean it's not like just from the podcast before you know just just to get try to get a job or something sometimes you you need to kind of learn how to hey here's my real yeah or or uh, are you still looking at my stuff kind of you know you you have to like engage and it's in everything you know if you if you want to date someone you have to kind of create a situation where people want to respond because they actually have something to respond and it's not just how are you doing kind of um situation no thank you very much for for that because that was something i um, I really appreciate you coming for that. But on on a, on a specific sense, that, that was interesting. I didn't notice that. But for me, it was totally normal. For me, that was this this criminal call and uh, technical preparation and stuff like that. That was not something I I appreciated. But I was not. It was not not something I felt like I put a heavy burden on someone. It was like if you don't want that, that's fine. But then we will we cannot do that because I I don't want to. I don't know, like waste your time because it's suddenly not as as it should be, um, and we have to kind of remodify for half an hour, and uh, or like it it looks bad. I mean, that's something I also don't. I don't want you to look bad or, or sound bad, and I feel like this is something where I didn't even thought about it. And and I think that's super important. Is like when you when you decide to go your way, as you did, for example, too, is like you just do it. And some people maybe say like this is odd or he's maybe cocky or whatever, but you yourself in this situation, because you decided that you don't even see this as a, as aggressive way or a cocky way. Um, if you want a job, you go to ILM or you call ILM and then say, Hey, um, can I have an interview? And they say, no, then like, then you try something else because, and a lot of people will say like, Oh, this is annoying them. They will be pissed off and they will be not, but I can tell you 90% of the time they will not, as long as you're not on the edge of you know extreme um you a lot of times i appreciate as long as it's well 
delivered. You know, and I think that is actually a little bit of the of the gateway to everything, to jobs, to podcast episodes. I'm pretty sure you, you had the same problems in the beginning of your podcast, connecting with people and bringing them and building trust and doing all this stuff and finding a way that people will actually respond and do the things basically and same thing in job. And I feel like this finding the right way to, to write an email, to make the first step calling so someone important. maybe is, I think one of the, the best skills that you can pick up, to be honest. Learning to write an email, like a lot of times someone applies for a job and they say like, oh, I guess I suck because like no one hired me. And what they don't realize is that no one even looked at your reel because you didn't write the email right. Like there's, there's a whole process. And the more empathy you have, the more you can put yourself in the shoes of the other person, the more you might actually realize like they are busy. Let's say with hiring people, like most supervisors at a, a studio, let's say you're the head of 3D, um, you know, that's your department. Hiring people is usually not your job description. You don't wait every day like, oh, who am I going to hire today? It's how do I prevent fires all over the office and make sure everyone's happy and not quitting and you know all these other things and then on my lunch break i might be looking at some reels you know so the more that you can put yourself in the shoes of the other person and understand them not only can you communicate that to make them feel understood which goes a long way when someone says hey i realize that you're probably busy with deadlines and blah 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 blah, blah. if i can just take a few seconds of your time that person is right away going to be like okay this person gets me opposed to like hey here's my reel why, you know, then it's like, why haven't you replied? I've had people uh, angrily comments all over my social media saying, why haven't you replied to my email? I hate you. The first time I ever went to Weta, like first time I walked through the doors of Weta, uh, as I was opening the door, this American guy yanked the door open, recognized me and started yelling at me saying that two years ago, I, um, he emailed me and I never replied. And like, I genuinely thought he was going to hit me. Like this was how angry he was. And that was my, my first experience walking through the doors of that place was, was that. And um, that's when I realized maybe I should reply to every email just in case. <laughs> just to be safe. But, but, it, but it is, um, it's such an important thing is to, to think about that. Like uh, Seagraph was last week and um, I spoke on a panel uh, about career stuff. And that was something that came up a lot was the fact that, you know, if someone applies for a job, like it, it doesn't mean that, your reel is ever going to get looked at it doesn't mean a lot of things but it's more about making sure like okay make sure my email subject line is something they're going to click on make sure that the email is compelling enough and doesn't waste the time it's clear what i'm applying for who i am the more that you put the effort in the more that it's, it's going to mean that they probably will read it and then hopefully if they read it then they might click on the link hopefully if they click on the link they'll actually watch the whole reel because that's another thing people think is that just because I sent in my reel, obviously they're going to watch the whole thing. And I've had a few people argue with me on YouTube about that, where they say, because I would say that I've tried to explain how volatile the real review process is, that we'll have a spreadsheet of 100 people and we're looking to hire two. So we're looking for an excuse to click on the next reel, like to skip it. So as soon as there's a bad shot, we're going to move to the next one. And I've had like one or two people say like, Alan, that's ridiculous. Like, you know, if I send them my reel, of course they're going to watch the whole thing. It makes no sense why they would, um, you know, why that why they would not watch my whole reel. And it's like, well, when you've got an hour and you've got a hundred reels, and most of them are five minutes long, do the math. So, 
everyone's got their own ideas in their head of of how things are, but they're not necessarily how they actually are. Yeah, it's the problem with this internet or discuss discussion a lot of times. Also, like in terms of like pipeline planning, or sometimes a lot of times I have to to tell people like this is not how things work. This is not how reality is. I'm I'm someone I'm I'm the I'm I'm the first one who is called optimist. Literally, I had it so many times. Alex, you're too optimistic. Alex, you're too optimistic. No, this is what I what I want. Everything else I don't accept. But um, a lot of times, like on the internet, people are like this is how things are, and it, they they don't think about. For example, I remember there was one with a resume, and it was a Maya interface. The whole the whole resume was literally like a Maya interface, the paper form, but Maya. And I was like, this is the worst. This like I mean, it looks cool, but this is the worst. No HR person in the world wants to print this shit out. <laughs> and they that's yeah. what they do they they will they will print it out and then like if you kill their printer or maybe they it doesn't even print it out because there's not enough colors or whatever they will they will hate it you know and this is where where people are so engrossed in some minor details that are extremely unimportant that they forget the like reality and how things actually like work in terms of like where's the priority of the person on the other side not mine because for me everything is important that i do how do i make it easy for them exactly how do i make it easy for them to hire me putting my phone number on the resume is actually a way to get hired because there's so many times where we've wanted to hire someone and by the time they reply to the email it's like oh we already picked up the phone and hired someone an hour later you know so again like the more that you think okay um who is my competition you know in other words like I'm not the only person on the planet applying for a job. Yes. Um, also, what are they really looking for? Because that was one thing that we said in the SIGGRAPH thing. I was saying, don't call yourself a particle ninja. Don't call yourself like a, a pipeline god or whatever. Because <laughs> the thing is that the person who's actually looking at the resume probably doesn't live and breathe. They, they don't know what Maya looks like. They're, you know, they're looking to fill a certain thing. They're, let's say, a recruiter. And they're looking for a very specific pipeline technical director. And then you come along and you're like, I'm a pipeline ninja. And it's like, okay, cool. Well, we're looking for a pipeline TD. I guess you're not that. You know, you need to tick the box. And that's all people are trying to do is tick the box and move on to the next person on the big long list of people they got to hire. So they're not trying to get all smart. You know, it's not about being clever. It's about being intelligent. You know, so I think this is such a, a critical thing is the more that you put yourself in the shoes of the other person, the more you can understand, okay, here are all the other people applying. They're probably doing this. What can I do better? Uh, how can I make myself stand out? Um, what is going to make it easier for the other person? How do I make it clear? How are they going to misunderstand? All the things that you start to think about, it's going to make you better at doing that thing. And it's the same thing if, if we're talking pipeline. It'd be how are they going to break the tool? What are the dumb things they're going to do? You know, the more that you start thinking about that, the, that's when you start to really kind of get into the head of like, well, how do I make this is not only do the thing it's meant to do. Because one thing which I'm sure you would get a lot is, well, let's just automate the whole process. And it's like, oh yeah, that sounds great until you want to do something slightly different. And the whole thing is like literally A to F and they have no control in between. But if you make it phasic and make it, you you click this button and then you click the next one, you can deviate a button three and you can do something slightly different. Yeah, I mean, it's, it reminds me on, on the comment after a while you'll be finished with the pipeline if you, you know, like you did it. For me, it's like, I would be happy. I would be like stunned. If I ever write a pipeline that I basically makes me unemployed, I would be happy. First thing, I achieved my goal. Second, um, it means I don't want to work that because that means there's nothing to do for me. I don't want to 
you know, dig myself again, like basically like a French system, break it just to make to make yourself uh, employed again. Um, no, I don't care. Like if I if I found like if I finished it, I'm happy. I, I, I achieved like the mastery basically, and then I find another challenge because I don't want to work on something that basically is finished and I'm just continue digging. So I think that's even if it would be reality, I would I wouldn't mind to be honest because. I want I want to work something where I'm excited about and not like uh, I mean it's not everyone's situation that you can be excited about your job like some people just have to work to find you know money and stuff like that but we are in the, a situation where we can decide that so why why should I kind of don't be happy about okay I I want to make myself obsolete I try to make my courses the best I can if if, if someone just makes my, one of my courses and that's enough he doesn't need all my other courses okay that's good for me because that's my goal is not specifically to sell. My goal is that I want to share what I learned in a way that I I would I would love to have if I if I could couldn't go back, you know. I would have like to have this course. That's right. I think the same thing applies for you too probably. Well, it's it's the scarcity mindset. Like everything you just said is exactly what a lot of people think. They're like, "Well, if I make the perfect you know, thing that just works, then, you know, I'm irrelevant." It's like, "No, like that means that your reputation is, you know, the next job, you better get paid more, you better do more, you've, you know, it's everything. And same thing, if you make a course that is phenomenal, and it solves everyone's problems, then the scarcity person is going to say, well, then no one's going to ever need to buy from me again. But you're forgetting that that person is then going to be mentioning how they know what they know because of that course, and they're going to recommend it. And that's what I mean, like, there's, there's definitely going to be people who are just thinking on the small level and they're trying to like, it's the same way with teaching and everything else, which again, you know, a lot about is that you only get people who are like, well, I don't want to give away my secrets. Oh yeah. And not only does it, you know, go back to what we talked about in the beginning where you are that one trick person is like, well, what do you do for a living? Well, I do these two things. That's all I do. Um, versus the person who's like, well, if I give away everything, it's going to force me to grow. And not only that, but it's so cool when someone then comes back later on and they're like, hey, I, I took your idea and I did this with it. And suddenly I'm learning from what, you know, they originally learned from me. And then they went in a whole different direction. And, you know, it's uh, there's a meeting I had this morning with a software company and they're talking about um, making some of their stuff open source. And, you know, I love that idea because it means that there might be someone else who just takes it in a whole different direction than what we've talked about and what we've set the scope to be so again it's, it's all about growth and not just you but other people and that goes full circle it might end up being something that you then are able to benefit from long term yeah and for and for each person that want to punch you somewhere at, at weta headquarters is there is like thousands that that write you and thank you and and see you at the seagraph and say like hey alan thank you very much that was that that uh, like make me possibilities i could like afford things i could do the the project i wanted i can go to companies right. i wanted and stuff like that so i think that's the you forget like there's always a conflict people will hate you it do doesn't really matter what you do as, as long as you push you people will dislike you for their own reasons but uh, that doesn't stop you at the end. But I think what what, what we should end end this episode on, and I think that would be a I think a good wrap up is like with your rebellious and focused mind and against the stream. So let's say um, I like someone wants to go to Pixar. That's a little bit selfish question now, but uh, let's go this way. How would you approach that? 
Can't Fail Cafe. So there's this uh, cafe down the street from Pixar, uh, which is open really late at night. And, um, you know, you could go there and, and drink and hopefully meet some people at Pixar and, and network. And it's a really shitty bother. But so, um, <laughs> in, in by the way, I'm taking though, notes because that's that's actually <laughs> one of my goals in the future to work uh, like one time at Pixar. That's definitely on my bucket no, list. No, I, I caught on. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, that's a shitty bar. I used to go with Neil Blevins and a few of the guys and, um, and eat over there. It's, uh, it's, it's really, I, I feel like it should be called the fail cafe because I've, I've always hated it. But, um, yeah, I mean, I think the, the key thing, first of all, is just to ask yourself why, because a lot of times people feel like, well, that's what you got to do. And it kind of goes back to the same problem in the very beginning. It's like, well, why do you want to be a lawyer? It's like, well, my dad told me that I got to make something of myself, you know? So suddenly you're, you're living your own dream. Like ILM for the longest time, I never really had interest in going there. And it's because like someone, someone spoke to me recently about this. Uh, and I, I forget what it was, but I told them that like, it was actually during the cigarette thing. Um, yeah, I, I personally like smaller studios. I just find that things happen quicker. And I, I feel like ILM is one of the rare places you actually can move up um, fairly quickly considering the size of it. But in general, like the bigger the, the machine, the, you know, there's going to be a bottleneck at a certain point where it's just, there's enough people who've been there 20 years that they all got to die before you could ever get that promotion. And um, so in general, I've always liked smaller places. I just find they're a bit more intimate um, and bigger places. It's, it's way more structured and it's just, they're different beasts really. But I think why is the, is the really important thing because Sometimes your reason behind doing something when you actually, again, it's, it's about saying it out loud versus a feeling. It's like, I got to work at ILM. I got to work at Pixar. I got to work at Weta. Um, when you actually put it in the context, that, that actually might help you get closer to your goal when you realize like, well, the reason I'm doing it is, is X. And it also, once you actually get there, you can remind yourself, well, why did I want to do this in the first place? But if you can't come up with a good reason, it's a superficial reason like, well, you know, it'll be good for the resume, which actually isn't a bad thing necessarily as a strategic thing. But sometimes then it kind of helps concrete the idea of like, well, do I really need to go to that place? Um, now, there are people I know who uh, who have worked at like tick the boxes, DD, RNH, Sony, you know, everywhere. And it's once I work at these 10 places, then, you know, I can do whatever I want. And it, you know, that becomes a strategy as well. Um, so I think understanding your why is going to help you get closer to your goal or further away because it's going to help you realize, well, I don't actually want this honestly at all in the first place. Um, then it's about, I can't stress enough how important relationships are because it doesn't matter how good you are if the other people, like Weta is a good example. Um, one of my friends, Richard Barker, he's not around anymore, but he was one of the line producers on Lord of the Rings. And he was telling me at Weta how it was always cheaper, like during this during Lord of the Rings, like it was always cheaper to rather than hiring someone, getting their visa, flying them over, putting them in a hotel, paying them a salary, working with them for three months, and then realizing that they actually lied about everything or they're a-holes or whatever it might be. Um, it's a lot cheaper to pick up the phone and just ask someone like, Hey, what's this person like to work with? And then they can be like, Oh, stay clear of them. Like it's the me show. Like that person's all about themselves or whatever it might be. And that always stuck with me. Cause it was just like, yeah, that makes sense. Like 
your reputation is everything. And usually, um, you know, the people who've uh, worked with those, that person before, they're going to be able to give some insight into like what they're like. Um, and so reputation becomes everything because a lot of the times you will hire that person because you have a, re uh, a relationship with them over someone else because hiring is always gambling. And you're taking the gambling away when it's someone that you know, you've already worked with before, you know what to expect. Um, and also that can be a thing where, uh, sometimes just having a mutual friend means that it, it goes a long way to say, well, okay, well, we're going to favor you over the other people. So again, it's just, that's another thing that's really important is when you start to get to know a lot of people at that company, then it, I call it the Trojan horse because you can send your reel into the, that person and they can hand deliver it to the right person, the decision maker, not the gatekeepers. And, you know, even the other day, uh, I, I said this, I was like, I would love to know how many animation reels Pixar gets on a daily basis. And the thing is, Pixar, as creative as they are, actually are an extremely technical company. And they'll usually hire people who only if they have a PhD. Now, that's not always set in stone, but it is kind of like the level that they're playing at is that they're looking for technical people. They're not looking for creatives. And the, the funny thing is that they will have the pick of the litter of creatives anyway, because everyone who's I want to be an animator, and unless it's a creature animation, is going to be sending their stuff to, to Pixar. So again, like I said before, putting yourselves in the shoes of the other person, if you're being flooded with people sending in their reel all the time, then you got to think, well, maybe there's a better way. What am I doing? What is everyone else doing? And what can I do differently that might help? And like I said, Trojan horse being you send in that the demo reel to someone else, and then you can break out and be like, okay, I'm, I'm in. Um, that's exactly what you can do is you can find the right people who not only can at least tell you like three people at the company that actually would be able to say, we want to hire this person over uh, HR, who is just going to put you in a database. And when the, the tricky thing is that when it's time to hire someone, that's when they're going to hire. They're going to hire you the week after you send in your reel saying, Hey, thanks for sending your reel. We'll create a position for you. Now it's going to be go in the database a year later This ever ever growing list of people who've been in this holding pattern this entire time, now it's time to hire them. Meanwhile, someone who's not doing that is able to go in a different direction and be able to skip the holding pattern of one year or whatever long it is, and instead be on the front of the mind of the person who's actually going to say, you know what, I think we need another TD, another animator, whatever it might be. And in my experience, you're usually only advertising for a position when you've exhausted every other option. In other words, hey, does anyone know a good animator? Hey, does anyone know, you know, if there's no one in front of mind. So if you have someone in mind when you're in that meeting, and there's nothing better than when you get an email from three different people at a company, because you know, at that moment that they all left a meeting and decided, let's go and hire so-and-so. And so you're getting an email from the producer, the head of the department, and HR, they've all gone out and reached out to you. It's just like, well, clearly, that was a decision that was made in the meeting to hire Paul, Jim, Sarah, whoever it might be. So that is the, the outcome that you ultimately want is to be able to be sitting, uh, for them to be sitting in a meeting and decide like, hey, we need another animator. Oh, I know someone who would be really great. What if we hire this person? Here's their website. Um, I've been talking with them over email for the last two years. Like every couple of months, they just shoot me an email and, um, and give me some updates on what they've been doing. This actually would be perfect for them. That's the sort of thing that you want. So again, relationships are everything because 
that's when you're going to have people fighting for you rather than you needing to come in with, you know, introducing yourself for the first time along with an army of other people who are all doing the same thing as you. So, uh, yeah, I think that's really important. I think also aligning the material that you're doing with what they do. So if um, you come in with nothing but Jurassic Park dinosaurs and they're animating cutesy Disney stuff, it probably won't align too much. Or if, let's say, your pipeline stuff, if um, you're not solving the problems that they solve, you need to be able to show, like, tick that box that you understand the problems that they have, which is, you know, multiple artists who maybe don't have much experience with the technical stuff, trying to make it cute and fuzzy and safe for them, but meanwhile doing all the heavy lifting under the hood, whatever it could be. Like, think of the problems that they have and then be able to communicate that you understand their problems more than anyone else. Yeah, and I, I love the, the the first one because because that actually resolves the, the typical issues. What if I don't know anyone? What if no one can recommend me and stuff like that? But it is actually one of the things that come, ties back to what we talked in the beginning of invite some chaos and invite some push to your life. No one stops you if you can afford it or whatever for a week. No one stops you to to go to to the US and hang out there in, in bars, meet some people, maybe while you, you're, you're lucky. I mean, we're not talking on stalker style here, but like a little bit <laughs> on the on the style and on the healthy, healthy, I'm, I want this and I, I push as far as I can and then the rest falls in place basically. And it's basically a little bit like that. It's, it's literally like just, just doing something like this and then it creates an opportunity, create the opportunities. And if you don't know anyone, I mean, no one stops you from reaching out on LinkedIn. That's actually what I did a lot of times when I wanted to, I was thinking about interviewing at Digic, I was reaching out to the lead lighter and I was like, hey, and then I was reaching like just to communicate is a little bit just like how they do lighting. And then I reached out to artists to ask, how is the company? And I'm, I'm sure there is a chance of them rolling my name, maybe, who knows? Maybe not, maybe yes, because uh, maybe I'm memorable or maybe I'm not, but at least I, I have the chance to be memorable. And like reaching out on LinkedIn is not a super complicated thing. I mean, you, can, you have to no. be aware that maybe one out of 10 messages gets through, depends on your message, but it, it, it's not like it's a little bit of numbers game a little bit. So don't be like, I want this guy, or like, like basically I want that at Catmull is answering my email. <laughs> I always say... Pick, pick your top three, because you're right. Like, um, there's going to be a lot of cases where you they're banking on one person, one yes. opportunity. They're like, okay, time to apply for my first <laughs> job at ILM. And, Seven and then pages no email. one replies. Yeah, but, but find uh, three people who are good decision makers. That way you've got a few backups and, uh, and go from there. And you're absolutely right. Like, it's about, um, you know, doing... Uh, first of all, doing it, I always say you got to be in it to win it because... A lot of the time, that's what happens is most people think, well, you know, they'll probably say no. And so they don't even try in the first place. And that's what we're saying about excuses. We're going full circle now. Um, but that's just it. Like, go out and reach out to them. And for instance, they can listen to your show. And um, there's an interview with a technical director at Pixar. So they can have a reason to reach out and say, hey, I just want to reach out and say, um, I watched that interview with you. It was really informative. Um, thanks so much. Uh, for putting that out there. It was really awesome. By the way, quick question X. Uh, and that's all it needs to be. It doesn't need to be a, a transactional relationship. And I think that's where most people get it wrong is that they're only emailing someone when they want something. And the problem with that is that 
then the other person, again, put yourself in their shoes. They're in a situation where a complete stranger is now asking for something like, give me a job. And then they need to reply with like, well, I'm sorry, but I can't help you. But, you know, it's, it's a lot easier just not to reply than to have to actually go out of your way to reply and give bad news. So suddenly you've now alienated yourself from the person you're trying to reach out to, opposed to making it super simple. And this is, again, where I get pushback from from random people online where um, it will be like, oh, it can't be that simple as emailing someone a simple question like, hey, I just want to reach out instead of like, um, give me a job. It's I just want to reach out and say, I love the studio. You guys do amazing work. I was really curious about that one kitten video that you guys did. That was phenomenal. Um, how long did it take to do? Just some simple question, but suddenly it's about them and they, they get to reply and talk about something that they did and they're passionate about. Like, yeah, I would want to reply and say, oh, thanks so much. That's so cool. That commercial was so much fun. We actually did it in two weeks, which was insane. Blah, 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 blah. But the, the key thing is also to, to follow up and nurture relationships. Um, what I mentioned in the Seagraph thing uh, last week, which is why it's top of mind, but um, Tim Miller, the owner of Blur Studio, um, when I first applied for a job when I was like 18, um, what happened was he replied, he offered me a job and I couldn't get a visa. And I could have left it at that. And then when, when I could work in the US, I could email him a few years later and be like, hi, Tim, uh, you offered me a job five years ago. Uh, can I come work for you? And he'd be like, who are you? But what I did is every six months or three months or whatever, I would just email him and say, hey, uh, I just want to send you some updates on like, here's some new work that I've done. And he'd reply like, oh, really cool stuff, blah, blah, blah. And the whole point was that when it came time to go work at Blur, it wasn't, who are you? It was, when do you want to start? And it's because I nurtured that relationship that I created that. And sorry for the background noise. I told you that they're coming. <laughs> no worries. Like uh, I know you, you you're busy. You have a meeting after after this one. Um, I have one final question. I'm super curious about. Is like, what would you do if you wouldn't go the career of VFX animation supervising? What would be like in an alternative reality? What would be your career path if it wouldn't be for film? Great question. I don't know the answer. Um, I, I'll. <laughs> I'll uh, answer it by diverting it for a second, but I'll just say that I've been pretty fortunate where whenever I, I haven't been boxed into one thing, I've always looked at it like I can sidestep into other stuff. So I mentioned before, I've like produced and supervised. I've, um, you know, I work on set, but I'll work on the box. I've worked in Maya, I've worked in Max. I've worked as a character animator, a model, or, you know, so I feel in a lot of ways, like most of us don't realize we've got complete freedom to do whatever we want and, and experiment go quit and go work at KFC for six months. Uh, whatever you want to do, it doesn't mean that you're giving up and walking away. It just means that, hey, I'm going to try this out. I'm, I want to take a break and have fun doing this or that, doing a course, whatever it could be. So I think that in a lot of ways, like we are in this amazing job where we're in a creative field where we have the freedom to say, well, you know what? I want to go work on set behind the camera for a year. And I've, I've had friends who've done that, where they've used their connections, they've built working in film to say, can I go and work as a grip? Uh, I'll even pay for myself, whatever it might be to just get that experience. So we've got a lot of freedom that I think that most people don't realize. Um, in terms of what I would do, that's that's on your end, right? Or That's me. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I was like, whoa. Um, that, for me, I think that um, I don't really know what the heck I would be doing, but I think it would be creative in some way. And I think that... Um, in a lot of ways, I've, I've gotten, I've been fortunate enough to experiment and do all that without needing to give up one or the other. So I like writing, I like speaking, I like 
uh, shooting, working on set, collaborating with people. So yeah, it's, it's hard to say. And I, I honestly, like I said before, I think about it occasionally of, a, of the what if, what if I hadn't taken risks and taken chances and what if I'd played it safe? What if I didn't lean into my fears and go after the things I wanted to do? What would I be doing? And it scares me in a way because I'm fortunate enough to be doing what I want to do rather than doing what I fell into just because it was there and it was easy, easier to grab at that than it was to grab at something much higher than I need to work for. So yeah, I think that, um, I think that that's really what it's at is, is going after what you, you want versus what's within reach. Yeah, I can totally uh, picture. Did I divert the, the question? <laughs> the answer no, in a way, in a way, you answered it. I, I can totally imagine you as a, like a motivation speaker from every part, or like you know, from be be powerful or whatever. Like I can totally imagine you as a motivation speaker from life. Stop being lazy. That would be my only. Advice. That would be like <laughs> <laughs> just just like do five minutes every day kind of thing. Like, no, but that, that's, uh, no, makes sense. And uh, yeah, I think, but, but that's that's a thing I, I like to ask because I feel like there is this kind of um, need to combine things. You know, a lot of times you're not just doing one thing. You a lot of times combine something that you love. So for example, one of the things I hear a lot of is like, working with hands because we work so much with computers a lot of people say like alternative career would be cool to work with hands like i would be a carpenter or something like that just because i love to i miss that and i feel like the same thing do you do too for example you love to motivate people even if you have the situation where people get a little bit on your uh, bad side now but you love to motivate and then you combine that with film and supervising and all these roles and i think that's a stick the secret is kind of like um do one thing become a master and then throw all the things that you love and combine them you know mix them up and make make them bigger don't be just a lecturer be a coach with lecturing like i like for example that i love i love to teach but i get bored if i teach the same thing but i love like this like just like how to psychology works so i like to combine them so all those things, and I think the same thing you apply to on the same level. I love that. That's so cool. That's it. Thank you. Thank you very much for joining me, Alan. It was fantastic. I really enjoyed our conversation. Yeah, likewise, man. This has been a lot of fun. So I appreciate you and I appreciate you having me on. Um, yeah, and hopefully some people found this valuable. Uh, it's definitely a lot of fun. I noticed you have more experience with that because my endings always suck. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I, um, I'll say that uh, I think I read somewhere that people always like they never they never know what to say at the end. So then for some reason, whenever like when I first read that, suddenly I'm, I'm a lot more conscious of it now. Whenever I do listen to or watch videos, like a lot of people will get really stuck at the end. They're like, uh, and goodbye <laughs> or whatever. You know? So um, but but I think from editing my own episodes, like I've, I, I think I've realized that when people are showing gratitude at the end, it, it always sticks out a lot more than the person who's like, yep, goodbye. You know, thank you very much. You're, you're amazing. Like you are amazing guest and host in both situations. And, <laughs> uh, I, 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 have, I still want to learn so much more from you. So if we ever get a chance, if you ever around in France at the moment, uh, hit me up if I'm USA, I definitely will, will, uh, pay yeah. you on that. And I and keep in contact. I, I would love to keep that no, yeah. because I, I really enjoy, enjoy you. And I feel like, um, you have a lot of things to give and I, I really appreciate that. And uh, thank you very much. Yeah, man. Uh, again, uh, this has been a lot of fun. It's been really cool to chat and learn a bit more about you as well. That's it with this week's episode of the 21 Artist Show. Thank you so much for watching and listening. 
This podcast is 100% ad-free. And to keep it that way, check out my website, 21artistshow.com. There you can find exclusive access to awesome masterclasses and coaching opportunities to work successfully in visual effects, animation, and games. Just go to 21artistshow.com. And don't forget to share it with people who would benefit from that content and tell them they're awesome. See you on the next episode. Next on the 21 Artist Show. When I saw it in the cinema, it was actually quite emotional, not because of the movie in itself, but because it was such a big arc, right? From watching the movies and the prequel trilogy, trilogy and now being part of, of the end. And then Star Wars uh, Skywalker saga is done. That was almost emotional. And uh, they really pushed that into the making of. If you watch the, the Blu-ray making of, it's, it's, it's like an end of an era. And uh, they, they get this point across really well.